Are you an angel? What? An angel. I heard the deep space pilots talk about them. They're the most beautiful creatures in the universe. They live on the moons of Diego, I think. You're a funny little boy. Welcome to the Three Men in a Retrospective Podcast, Star Wars Retrospective Series. At last we will reveal ourselves to the Jedi. At last we will have revenge. Join Garrett. I foresee you will become a great Jedi Knight. Matt. The ability to speak does not make you intelligent. And Adam. He owes me what you call a life debt as they review each film in the Star Wars saga. Ah, mori mori. From George Lucas's original trilogy. I think you can kiss your trade franchise goodbye. All the way through the Disney sequels and side stories. You're something big doo-doo this time. The boys will look at each film individually and decide how this popular film series holds up. That's the last thing Misa won. Search Your Feelings, podcast listeners. You're going to have to go back to the Senate and explain all this. The Percolated Media Star Wars Retrospective begins now. Excuse me! Star Wars, Episode 1, The Phantom Menace. Released May 19, 1999. Budget on this was $115 million. Box office eventually went to $1.27 billion. And this was directed once again by George Lucas. Alright, well, last time we went to Star Wars land, we discussed Ewoks on Endor. And it took George Lucas 16 years after Return of the Jedi, to return to the galaxy far, far away. We have discussed his foray into Indiana Jones, and now we have ended up here. I'll save Adam for last, because me and Adam have stories we can tell together. But Matt, I want to start with you, sir. You were, let's see, you were my brother's age. So you were, what, about five, six-year-old kid? This movie's coming out. Were you excited for it as a child? Oh, God, yeah, this is coming from someone who does not fancy themselves a Star Wars fan, more so fanatic. Like, I, I know Star Wars, but it's not like the original trilogy were consistently watched in my household. But when someone mentions Star Wars to me, the prequels are what I think of, because these were the ones that were coming out as I was growing up. I was six when this came out, I was 12, 13 when Revenge of the Sith came out, so formative years. And these dominated the conversation so much about Star Wars because they were they were the new, they were the hip, they were the controversial some. But everybody talked about it, and I don't think this is a blanket statement. I think this is the most anticipated movie that's ever been released. When you talk about hype, when you talk about the will they or won't they of it actually getting made. When I saw the, the trailers for this, and when I was seeing like TV Guide, they had stuff of the pictures of... Darth Maul, it, it was impossible as a little kid not to be caught up in this because it looked so cool. I don't know anyone my age who did not go see this movie. You're absolutely right. The hype for this. I mean, starting back in 1983, George Lucas would give interviews saying the way Vader came to be was 
he was caught on fire. Him and Obi-Wan Kenobi had a duel, and he was caught on fire. And that was the outline of what we knew that Vader was going to eventually become. But we didn't know when or if this was ever going to happen. And Adam and I, you know, when I was... 14, 15 years old, I got a newly remastered at that time videotape set. It was 1995 of the original Star Wars trilogy. Included on that Star Wars set are three interviews with George Lucas himself being done by Leonard Maltin. And Lucas said he was already starting work on the scripts for the first prequel that it was going to eventually be three films. And he was writing this and me and Adam both looked at each other where we got so excited this was something that i anticipated like crazy my dad was caught up in the hype he also was really anticipating it adam me and you we got premiere magazines with darth maul on the cover we got all the figures as they were released we would play star wars role-playing games and learn about the new characters adam how excited were you when uh, this movie was coming out could not have been more Matt's point that this may be the most anticipated movie of all time. Yeah, I don't think it's even close. People talk about Batmania and stuff like that, and even that pales in comparison to this. You had two movies become financial successes because the trailer was attached to them. I mean, that's the mm. teaser trailer. Yeah. You know, that that's how Wing Commander ended up making a profit. What was the other Meet one? Joe, yeah. Joe Black. Meet Joe Black, yeah. The Death Becomes a Holiday, or Death Takes a Holiday remake. I love that movie, you by know? the way. I mean... <laughs> oh, I mean, God, that movie fucking sucks. I saw that in theaters, and I saw this trailer, and the trailer was a bonus for me. I actually really, really like that movie to this day. But fair to say, that teaser trailer is still one of the best teaser trailers that's ever been made. It is it's awesome. Just, I watched it, it in anticipation amazing. for this, and them coming out of that fog, that we see little hints of the pod race. Yeah, you're right. That trailer yeah. teaser to this day is still stands And they reuse the Biden Binary sunset music. Mm-hmm. Where, yep. like, every saga has a beginning. I, there's like three lines. As far as selling a movie, I mean, you already sold it on Star Wars. Name alone coming back, but goddamn, that's a great trailer. Adam, remember, remember when you and I we went and saw the Thin Red Line at the Metreon in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And they played that teaser trailer in front of that, and yeah, the whole that place a, erupted. That was a screaming. That was a yeah. screaming. Yeah. It wasn't a, a release at that point. Mm-hmm. The whole place went up in applause after that trailer was played. I mean, yeah. yeah. They put them on the front and back of movies so that people would stick around to watch it a mm-hmm. second time. I mean, that's how mm-hmm. crazy it was. I mean, you you would, and there were people making sure you couldn't just walk in. You had to buy a ticket. And when I saw Wing Commander, half the audience left after the trailer. But on top of that, I still have my four TV guides with lenticular cover. I have those still sitting in a box. I have my Entertainment Weekly. I have my Premiere Magazine. Just everything that was promoting this film was massive. I mean, the industry was doing everything it could because everybody was going to turn out for these films. Whether you loved or hated Star Wars, you knew about it. And it's amazing because now 16 years between films, just that number doesn't sound massive compared to how we've seen some rebooticals and stuff like that nowadays. But Star Wars was never going to exist again. And mainly because we had other forms of Star Wars media. We had video games. And some of those were done extremely well. And they told very good stories. Rebel Assault. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We had a myriad of books out there. And Mm -hmm. a lot of those told amazing stories. Here's a big middle finger to Disney for deciding all those don't count until they want them to count again. So we weren't wanting for Star Wars stories. We just did not have live action media. 
There was no Star Wars TV series. George Lucas always teased that I'm going to make Star Wars on TV one day, but it was never going to happen because of the cost. It was prohibitive. And movies just didn't seem like it would ever happen again. So when we heard it was happening, and then it was really happening, and then the casting news started to come out, mm. which everybody was excited, but I don't know why, because nobody was a star. I mean, there was no stars that were cast in this movie. Well, Liam, Neeson, was, Liam Neeson had been, uh, he'd been in the public eye. Yeah, you had him, yeah. you had Ooh, Sam yeah. Jackson coming off Paul Yeah, Fiction. Sam Jackson. Yeah. yeah, Sam Jackson, probably the biggest name. But yes, even Liam Neeson, for everything that he'd done, he wasn't a star. I mean, that, no. those were amazing performances, but sure isn't a star. You're right. It's not like Leonardo DiCaprio was playing Anakin Skywalker. Right. Or, you know, if you swap out Sam Jackson for Denzel Washington, that's big star power. Yeah. But it's amazing how, I mean, you had midnight openings of Toys R Us, and I know because I was there, and I had a checklist to buy every single Wave 1 figure, toy, blaster, and lightsaber that came out. I mean, the hype to this was unprecedented. I remember, as far as marketing, there was the Pepsi cans. Oh, yeah, Yoda. There was 20 of them. Each one had a different character on it. Because this movie had so many characters, they justified that many cans. And I'm pretty sure a lot of people got diabetes just from... (laughs) Just from trying to collect all those kits. That was a big thing. I remember the Rogue Squadron video game on N64 had oh, yeah. the Naboo Fighter in it before the movie was actually out. Yeah, my brother had that game too. Everything was there, but what was not there was Star Wars in cinemas for 16 years. And it's so funny, poetry at rhymes, 16 years between Phantom Menace and Force Awakens. Yeah. I remember, Adam, do you remember, they did a music video of Duel of Fates. Yep. And, and they I played it on MTV. And it's it's an orchestral. Yes. That they would do that for Duel of the Fates. Mm-hmm. And it was a hit. It was. I mean, that thing was huge. And then they also would play that music video at the end of Entertainment Tonight mm-hmm. and things like that as well. Google it, kids. That was a TV show that wasn't <laughs> TMZ. Talked about entertainment. But I had bought all of the re-releases of the scores leading up to it. I remember they came out with a bronze, silver, mm-hmm. gold of the original trilogy in disc. I bought those because it was the first CD, high-quality releases. And then it was a massive drop, and I think it was... It wasn't FYE. It was called something else, the store that I went to buy my episode one CD. And spoiler alert, the back, the track list... Oh, God. Frickin- yes. Oh, and I read the back about four days before we saw the movie. So, thanks. Um... <laughs> But even that alone, a line of people waiting to buy the new Star Wars score. Mm-hmm. The poster, the original one sheet mm-hmm. of The Shadow, to me, I think, is one of the best posters ever made. I remember the giant theater banner that I really, really wanted. It wasn't just the hype. The marketing was done really well. It was amazingly done. It, it kind of belied the movie that would come, but the marketing was fantastic. What I remember it really amping up was when they did the re-releases. And what Lucas was saying in the press when those were coming out was, this is a test run, and I feel after doing these that the effects are up to par, and we can go ahead and go through with the prequel trilogy I had in mind. And that's when it started. It was 1997 for me. And Mm -hmm. every single day, every single month, I would get these magazines and everything leading up to this. And I remember when I was working at the video store, we had a guy who come in. He was a visual effects artist who was actually working on Phantom Menace. He would come in all the time, and he would give updates. He knew how much I was anticipating it and he even hooked me up with an ILM shirt with episode one on the back and Adam I think you remember that shirt (laughs) and he was talking about how we're actually going to have a character in this movie that is all CGI all CG 
And that got me hyped. There were just things about this that leading up to it, so excited. And my dad was excited too. So in the time it was coming out, me and dad decided we were going to go to it. He goes, what are you going to do? I said, all right, I'll buy the tickets and then you get the snacks. He goes, okay, that seems fair. (laughs) After it was over, he was like, next time you buy the fucking snacks. (laughs) (laughs) But we went to the movie, we came out, and I was, you know what? I did not see any reviews beforehand. I walked out of there saying, it wasn't bad. And I think I went back to theaters to see it two more times. I was not one who went and saw it eight, nine, ten times. I saw it three times in theaters, which is the most I will ever go to a movie theater to see a movie again. Adam, did you go multiple times to this? For sure. I remember that opening day going to see it. And I'm trying to think if it was the next day. It was definitely more than once that weekend. So opening day, this was a got in line at 3 p.m. in the afternoon to see a film at midnight back when Mm. they did not start a film until 12.01 a.m. There was no Thursday, 3 p.m., 4 p.m., 5 p.m. That wouldn't start for about 20 years, you lucky freaking kids today. My lawn. (laughs) But we were in line in the afternoon and there was a Taco Bell in the same parking lot. So we would take turns while we were sitting outside. You couldn't even get inside. You could not pre-buy tickets to go later. No. We were sitting sitting outside, leaning against this building for the better part of seven hours before they let us in. And we would just walk one or two at a time, go to the Taco Bell, get some food, come back. That was the afternoon, get ready to go. And that was opening night. And then I want to say it was at least once more over the course of that weekend in the afternoon. I remember the main reason I, I was wanting to go back was because I was told by Adam, your, yours and my friend Thad, um, mm-hmm. I was told by him that E.T.'s in that movie. I said, really? <laughs> he goes, yeah, it's in the sentence. I'm like, oh, I got to go see it again just to see the, <laughs> the E.T.'s. I think that was, and then he's the one who took me to see it a third time. And I remember, too, like in line to see it, there were people in line watching the previous trilogy preparing for it. I had never seen, and Matt, I think you hit it on the head. I don't think there will ever be a more anticipated movie than what we got in May of 1999. But the movie came out, and the general consensus was, eh, it was okay. And then we got some major backlash in the years following. But Adam, did you walk out of there after two times, at least in theater, saying, "Uh, it was okay? I remember walking out going, they didn't do everything I thought. But I don't remember thinking, oh, that sucked. That wasn't the general thought. It was, uh, I don't know about this. Ooh, I don't know about that. But the movie ends in a way that it does, as we're going to discuss, that I remember being like, oh, that was cool. Oh, that was cool. Mm-hmm. That's what I remember of anything else. Is even when there was some bad talking, it was, oh, yeah, but remember X. Remember Y. Matt, did you walk out there? I mean, you didn't really have access to any Internet or anything out of, as a five-year-old. Were you, like, thinking, oh, that really sucked? I had dial-up, freaking America Online, I think it was around when I was six. I loved this when I saw it. I liked all three of these prequels when I saw them as a kid because I didn't have taste and I I didn't have access to the the Internet. I mean, look, let me be up front and say... I didn't have taste. Even though these movies soured people on the word prequels, you cannot say the word prequel without someone thinking of Star Wars in a negative connotation. In the same way that the Matrix sequels ruin the word sequels for a lot of people. I've never been someone who harbors any hatred for the prequels. Maybe it's because of my demographic being the age I was when I saw them. Now look, they're not perfect. I'm going to make it emphatically clear that I have criticisms of these movies. But I've, I've never understood the anger and the extremes people have gone to to vilify George Lucas and... Mm. 
I mean, there was that whole documentary, uh, The People versus George Lucas. Yes. Oh. You see some of those interviews where it's like, I want to be William Shatner and be like, get a life. But having said that, I have seen these movies. I think I've seen these more than I've seen the original trilogy, just because I, I watched these a lot when I was a kid. And I still remember I wore out the VHS tape. When they enter the, the hangar and Darth Maul shows up to the double doors. Mm, yep. I would always rewind to that spot and just watch that part on a loop. I'd watch the last 30 minutes, and it got to the point where the grain on that scene got so bad because I rewound the tape so much. But as far as the development goes, I think there's one name we, we have to thank in some way for Star Wars becoming popular again. That's Timothy Zahn. During the period where Star Wars was dormant, ostensibly, he wrote a trilogy of novels called his The Thrawn Trilogy. And that, for the people that read them, that really sparked an interest in Star Wars, but in the opposite of the prequels, they took place after Return of the Jedi. In many ways, they were the sequel trilogy before Disney's sequel trilogy. And I like those books a lot, but Adam's right, F you Disney, you only care when it suits your bottom line. But I think that helped Lucas see between that and the Dark Horse comics that there was still an audience for Star Wars. Yeah, and Lucas made a couple business decisions where he sold off his half of Pixar. And that's what actually enabled him to get the money to make this independently. Believe it or not, this is an independent film. It's an independent, 100% digital. Yeah. And I think, of anything else, it's important to remember some of what that means for the entire industry at this point. Now, it should also be said that he had just finalized his divorce with Marsha, and yep. he was way in the red when this movie was coming out, because he had also made a couple really bad business decisions, <clears throat> Howard the Duck, <laughs> and Willow, that really lost him a lot of money. And so it's kind of weird to think about, but I think in a lot of ways, this was more a financial decision than an actual creative decision. Well, he he's always said, and I think this is true, that he's had the basic idea for the prequels for a long time before he actually started writing. He knew Anakin was going to turn to the dark side. He had the idea of the corrupt old Republic, Palpatine playing both sides. He waited for two things. He waited for his finances to be in the crapper, where this would salvage that. But also, he had to wait for technology to catch up. A, a lot of the stuff that you see in this movie would not have been possible if he tried even five years beforehand. They shot this in 93, 94 instead of 97, 98. Jar Jar might not have been entirely CG. might have just been prosthetics. So everything just came together at the, the right opportunity for Lucas, and... Self-admittedly, he didn't want to direct this. He had talked to Ron Howard, he talked to Zemeckis, he talked to Spielberg, and they all pulled a Jedi mind trick on him and said, I think it's better off if you direct these, George. <laughs> and all three of you could go to hell. <laughs> <laughs> well, what Spielberg told him was, because he went to Spielberg to maybe want to direct Attack of the Clones, and Spielberg said, this is your baby. If you want to get these done the way you want to get them done, you do them yourself. I'm busy and, making other bad movies. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm busy begging Michael Crichton to write another book. So I, I was going to say, this is around the time we discussed when he was trying to get Lost World done. <laughs> yeah, and Rod Howard's like, I'm busy making prestige movies because he just made like Apollo 13. Yeah, which is a great movie, by the way. Oh, yeah. Rod yeah. Howard's made some really good movies, but his blockbuster filmmaking is not great. No. And little did we too. know he would direct a Star Wars movie later. Oh, quote-unquote direct a Star Wars movie. <laughs> <laughs> Damn, we got to do that one, don't we? For the record, I would have loved to see Spielberg do a Star Wars movie. I would, too. Yeah. I still would. Mm -hmm. I will not be surprised that doesn't happen once. Yeah, I mean, he's only got a small window left to do it in, unless he lives to 100, but I don't, I don't think that's... Like I said, I don't think he's going to be like Woody Allen where he makes movies till he dies. The backlash this movie faced is 
just incredible. And I'm sure two actors that we're going to discuss would like the majority of Star Wars fans to cut their faces with broken bottles. Because just like you mentioned, Matt, the hate that was laden upon this and the people behind the scenes of this, I'm surprised all of them ended up... (laughs) walking again you know Natalie Portman all of them really took a beating Adam at what point did you actually just feel the love and anticipation pretty much turn to uh this isn't very good I think a couple weeks later it seemed that as soon as everybody saw it and was like oh yeah that was great it was great you know we saw it multiple times once everybody saw it then it became cool to shit on it and this is not the only movie where that happens it's definitely not a it it may not have been a new phenomenon, but it was definitely the most. And I think it's only gotten worse since this film in the way of people acting that way. Avatar is another one that comes to mind where everybody saw it. Everybody saw it more than once. Everybody talked about it. And then it was, you know, maybe it's not all that good. But even when it's something is just, oh, it's only okay, this also started that something can't just be okay. It's got to be amazing or it's got to be shit. And shortly after, it was... Oh, this movie's shit. Well, Star Wars has become, and I think because of this movie, it is the light side of the dark side. You, if you criticize these movies, it's like you're a hater. But if you lavish praise, you're like, oh, you don't see how flawed these movies are? <laughs> Only Star Wars fans deal in absolutes. And there's that great line, I don't know who it's attributed to, nobody hates Star Wars more than Star Wars fans. And, and I have to say, the moment I learned about the backlash, because I didn't know at the time, it was when Revenge of the Sith was coming out and that clip of Darth Vader yelling no leaked online. That was my first, I was 11 or 12. I used the internet up to that point, but you can read that into that however you will. Uh, but that was the, when I first really started digging into forums and stuff and just seeing the hatred that people had, a, a considerable portion had for the prequels. And I'll say, to this day, Revenge of the Sith is still my brother's favorite Star Wars film. So there is something to be said, Matt, about yeah, which love, era... I would love my husband, because Christian is a huge Star Wars fan, much more than any of us on this podcast, and he always tells me about how much he loves Revenge of the Sith. And I'll, I'll talk about if I agree with him once we get to that show. Now, let me ask this. Did either of you go see this when it was re-released in 3D? Yes. Nope. I was there opening opening night, and I was kind of excited to see what they would do with the rest of the prequels. I was wanting to see them in 3D. It was reestablished 3D. It was redone 3D, but I thought the 3D was decent, and I thought it was pretty cool to see it in 3D when I went and resaw it. I went to go see it, and my opinion on the movie is still the same a decade later, but I thought it was cool seeing it in the theater for the first time since I was like, you know, six or seven, because I did see this three times when it came out. All right, boys, that's a lot of anticipation. What do you guys say? We dive right back into the galaxy far, far away. So in the crawl, we learn that the Galactic Republic is in turmoil and the taxation to outlying star systems is in dispute. Okay, this is the opening paragraph of the crawl to the prequel of a franchise you are picking up from 16 years later. Is this how you want filmgoers, most of which are kids, reintroduced to your massive adventure franchise? Taxation, kids, get excited. You know what? I remember, and I did not remember till just now, and I don't know if you remember, they released this crawl to news organizations that. and stuff so that we knew what the crawl was because that was such a big deal. I didn't know that. Yeah, I remember seeing the, oh, what's the, oh, here's the crawl, learn what, and that was it. We didn't learn anything else, but I want to say about a month before the movie came out, they had shown the crawl or like the text of what it was. Hmm. And what were you feeling when you saw that? 
I was just excited that it was a cr- I was like, cool, I don't know what any of that means. And this is the fucker who read all the books leading up to this, and even he was like, what the fuck? <laughs> well, the Thrawn trilogy has nothing to do with taxation and finance. And... <laughs> yeah, as a six-year-old kid, and I, and I was someone, you know, I was very academically endowed, even as a boy. I had no idea what the hell any of this meant. So I had to turn to my mom and ask what it meant. And she said, I don't know. This wasn't in the, the previous movies. Uh, and she, look, she was not wrong. I'm not going to call it a mistake. Because one of the things I do admire about these movies on a conceptual level, it's like the Star Trek model, where just because it's science fiction doesn't mean that real-life issues, taxation and invading foreign countries, doesn't mean that that stuff went away. You know, it's just yeah. applicable to any galactic scenario. So I think this is fine. It's good setup. What I don't like in that crawl is talking about how the Jedi work for the government. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was... And I don't like them as it is, and now I'm like, oh, you guys can go fuck yourselves. <laughs> <laughs> well, to be fair, they did... I shouldn't say introduce this, but we have had an establishing story with this, with the Trade Federation things, because it was mentioned in The New Hope around that table when Vader and Tarkin first walk in, they mentioned that the Galactic Republic has been disbanded. So he has had this in his head. I'm just not sure if this is the... If this is the way to start off your massive science fiction franchise. If you remember, Obi-Wan says the Jedi were keepers of peace. Yes. That does not mean they were government stooges. <laughs> no. But Obi-Wan, as we'll find out, is very good about selective memory. Because <laughs> <laughs> remember, he tells Luke, oh yeah, your dad was a Jedi Knight and a good friend. What he forgot to say was, before I fucked him up. <laughs> <laughs> Took him to a barbecue. We... We learn that the Trade Federation has stopped all shipping to Naboo, and that the Senate has sent two Jedi Knights to help solve the dispute. By the way, all of this is resolved in the film's first opening 40 minutes. <laughs> we see the ship enter the blockade, and they are greeted by a protocol droid called TC-14. The Jedi take off their hoods, and they are revealed to be Qui-Gon Jinn, played by Liam Neeson, and Ewan McGregor. Now, let's talk about these two. First, you will never see someone walk through a part the way Neeson does in this movie. <laughs> And I think this movie, along with The Haunting, that came out that same year, pretty much, oh, it caused him to say, you know what, I want to take a fucking break because I'm sick of this shit. On the other hand, I do love what McGregor's doing. And you can tell that he really studied Guinness from the first film in order to get the character right. And this is going to go on to be the best returning character of this trilogy. I love McGregor, but Neeson looks like he'd rather be anywhere else. Because he would have rather been anywhere else. I think because of his background... For certain actors, it's a lot harder to step into a world that you cannot fully materialize with computers. I think that was a challenge, even for the best actors. I mean, Jeff Bridges has talked about he struggled with that. He's a great actor. Qui-Gon is the closest thing that this movie has to a main character. And I actually think Liam Neeson's fine. Uh, I think he's got his moments. But uh, Qui-Gon is a character I like more in concept than I do execution because... I like how he openly questions the Jedi, like he goes against the Jedi code as we learn in this movie. He's ironically a rebel in his own order, and it makes sense when you learn what we'll find out in later movies about his master, why he's so kind of like a maverick in the Jedi and isn't like a, a brainwashed drone like so many other Jedi appear to be. And yeah, uh, McGregor's great. I just wish he got more to do in this movie, because there's a part where he's stuck on a ship for yeah. what? half the movie, and honestly, people have written books about how to redo the prequels. I do think not making Obi-Wan the central character was a bit of a mistake. Either him or Anakin. 
carry out through all three movies. Because it's a juggling act to start early on. It's hard to pinpoint, okay, who am I exactly supposed to follow? Because if you say it's Anakin, he doesn't come in until, what, a third of the way through the movie? Yep. Give or take. So it's, it's, a, it's a narrative challenge. And this goes without saying, George Lucas does not know how to direct actors. <laughs> and we'll definitely get that when we get into more of the performances here. Adam, how do you feel about McGregor and Neeson? You know, I didn't know any of them ahead of time. I feel like I felt you, McGregor, but I can't say from where. You didn't say you didn't see Train Spotting? No, I've still oh. never seen Train Spotting. Oh wow! Maybe I'll watch the second one one day. The first I, it's actually pretty good. It it should not be as good as it is. Mm-hmm. That's true. I had seen Liam Neeson, but that's just because of that fabled story of when we saw Schindler's List at school, and I decided to drop acid before we went to the movie theater on a field trip. Oh, I thought you were going to say because you'd heard the stories between him and Julia Roberts, where Julia Roberts said he had the <laughs> biggest dig she'd ever seen. Oh yeah, he's got to tuck it into a sock. Yeah. <laughs> but I will say Marlon Brando feels that Liam Neeson sleepwalks through this movie that's how <laughs> enjoyed the casting I think Ewan McGregor comes across as a young Alleganis I buy it I don't buy the age by the end of it we got the Dumbledore problem again where we're young and hot we're young and hot we're young and hot and then in the span of 10 years we're freaking old and ancient so, I, you know, I do have an issue with that by the end of it. But I think where Ewan does, and Ewan does fine. I can't even say he does good. He does fine. But I do put that on, on George. A lot of this movie, I think there's some good story beats that we have going on. I think the acting across the board is pretty dang horrible. And I think that shows with George Lucas not being able to not just direct, but I don't think he can pick the good takes. I don't think he can edit very well. And even he talked about, oh, I can take this expression here, but I take the eyes from this shoot that I did over here and I put them together. He was focused on the technology. And for good reason. First digital movie, we got digital set extensions. You know, we got complete digital characters. But I think if he would have brought somebody else in to direct his story, I think this movie would be looked at much differently than it is. I think what he was most focused on, we'll talk about when McGregor has to swing the lightsaber. And McGregor, if you look at the way he holds that lightsaber, it is exactly the way Guinness held it in A New Hope. I think he was looking at more details than he was actually looking at getting a performance out. And Lucas will be the first to tell you that, too. The old joke, and we'll talk about it, faster, more intense. We talked about it with A New Hope. That's definitely the way he's directing actors here. But also his thing of Harrison Ford saying, you can write this shit, but you sure say it. Yeah, Yeah, he's not having anybody tell him that, because at this point, he is the most successful filmmaker of all time. You know, he made that trilogy, and people are going to go with what he says. And, you know, we have a producer on this called Robert Rick McCallum, who was Rick, the... Yeah, Rick McCallum. Rick McCallum, yeah. He's yeah. the biggest he's, fucking he's, yes man there ever was. He is the ultimate <laughs> fan of Menace. He, yes. He is the definition, if you listen to interviews or how these movies got made, he is the definition of a yes man. You need what? this for us? Okay, we'll get it. There's no reasoning yeah. behind it, but I'll get it for you. This is what happens when you give someone who's very creative no filter. You surround mm-hmm. him with people who say, well, it's like infinite wisdom. We trust whatever George says. Remember... He was married to an editor. He had two other directors come in to do the previous two installments. He had Lawrence Kasdan on this. He had Spielberg on Indiana Jones to balance him. This is, I'm not going to call it a power trip, because I don't think he was doing it with bad intentions, but every creator, and I say this about Tarantino, I think you really see and feel the effect of when he lost Sally Menke and when he lost Roger Avery as a writer. You can see a demarcation here. George Lucas needed someone to really collaborate with, whether that was a better writer, whether that was a producer who would challenge him. And, you know, this is what happens when someone has infinite power. It's kind of like when, to use a franchise we talked about previously, 
they gave Tim Burton a blank check for Batman Returns and said, just do whatever you want as long as it makes money. And that blew up in their face. This movie made a shitload of money, but it's not like it's the most well-regarded thing. And it should be said, he did ask Lawrence Kasdan to come to this and help him write the script. What Kasdan told him was, it's not that exciting because this stuff's already happened. I want to talk about things that are going to happen, which he eventually ended up doing. He did bring in, of all people, Carrie Fisher who at that point was a major ghostwriter in Hollywood. She did do a lot of touch-ups on all three of these scripts that we're going to talk about, but I don't think she touched it up enough because there's so much dialogue and so many things in this movie that happened that really, really needed a once-over by somebody other than Lucas. But I think that this perfectly encapsulates the prequel problem and the inserting into an existing timeline problem. Guess what? I know at the beginning of this movie... And Matt may or may not have at six years old. I know at the beginning of this movie, Obi-Wan's not going to die. There is no question whatsoever. So they do what they do with Qui-Gon. So to Kasten's point, he's right. When you do a prequel, these characters' futures are set in stone. The kid, Anakin, I know he's not going to die in the pod race. Guess what? Two films down the road, I know how that ends because I've been told at that point for almost 20 years how that ends. So I do think that's an issue, and I think that's an issue that continues to this day. Yeah, and, and the other way you could do prequels like this is you focus on two entirely new characters where we don't know what their fates are. Qui-Gon, we know he's not going to make it because he's not talked about in any of the other movies. <laughs> Obi-Wan never references his master, which you think Luke would ask him about. Be like, how do you know all this shit? Which makes you show what he thinks of Qui-Gon because he tells him, go talk to Yoda instead of my actual master in, in Empire. <laughs> we get the, I have a bad feeling about this line, which Obi-Wan feels, but Qui-Gon doesn't. And he stresses Obi-Wan to be mindful of the mission at hand. They wait for the Federation, and Qui-Gon promises the negotiations will be short. The Federation send the droid as they're being given drinks, and the Federation is talking to Darth Sidious, and he tells the Federation to kill the Jedi. There is a shot on the ship, and we are seeing the Jedi at work. Now I want to say, I love how the Jedi are handled in this movie. This is their prime. And seeing them do things like unseal the blast door, which when I saw this in theaters, I thought was really cool. The way Qui-Gon is getting this door to open and unsealing it, fantastic. And trolling their swords, this was all very cool. My 12-year-old self was very happy with the scene and the strength of their battles, one of which I'll really get into later. I really dug. Yeah, this is stuff we always wanted to see. We wanted to see Jedi be better than they were. You know, regardless of how you feel about the original trilogy, the lightsaber battles, except for me, the one in Return of the Jedi, and that was for all emotion. The stunt work isn't good. Here, it's not just good. It's pretty freaking great. We see them do more things. We're getting Qui-Gon feeling monkish right off the bat. And, yeah, seeing them do things, having him stick that lightsaber through the door and watching it kind of melt it away, that's just stuff that... You read about stuff you did in games, so this just feels really cool to a kid. And I mean, a kid at that point, I was 20, seeing this in a movie. Exactly. I like that the Jedi operate in their peak. They are monkish. They are defensive. If you yeah. notice, they're blocking blaster bolts. They're opening a door. They're not openly flinging around their lightsaber at people willy-nilly looking to chop heads off. They're using their training. It's like a Zen martial arts type of thing. Mm-hmm. No issue with any of the stunt work or the way the Jedi move in these movies. But when we get to the actual order itself, I have questions. But is this where we can talk about the battle droids? Yep, Um, it was my very next note. Go ahead. Okay, go ahead. (laughs) A lot of the criticism that was laid upon this when it had come out was, God, how dumb are these battle droids? They're really stupid. Well, that was 
Lucas's point. Lucas's point was to show these things, be completely idiots, you know, Roger, Roger, all that bullshit, because they need to establish a reason why they went to the human clones that they ended up eventually going to. I don't mind the battle droids. There are times when I think they're used pretty well, but they are completely fucking campy, especially in these opening scenes. Yes, they're campy, and it begs the question, why doesn't the Trade Federation just manufacture nothing but droidicas? Yeah. Definitely. Because those things are Badass. super effective, as as we'll see later on. And they're expensive like, as hell, I, brought, I bet. Yeah, even in this scene, Obi- uh, Qui-Gon's like, all right, Jordan we're outmatched, run. I get the battle droids, because it also eliminates the thing of like, oh, they're they're slaughtering soldiers. They're machines, no conscience, uh-huh. which Star Wars has a very complicated history of how they treat droids in general. Here, they're just tools. I don't hate the battle droids, but I, I do think the childlike antics that they have are a bit too much. As are the the Trade Federation themselves. Not going to call George Lucas a racist, but the obvious Asian inflections are inescapable. They might as well be the Yellow Peril. That's what the Jedi should refer to them as, because they can't pronounce R's. They only care about money and wealth. Yellow is the color of cowardice, and that's how they operate. I don't think Lucas thought this through 100%. And my biggest question as both a kid and now. Was it supposed to be a secret that Palpatine is Darth Sidious? It's a reveal, but I think you look at Ian McDermott, you know that's the Emperor. I'm like, he's wearing the cloak, he's got the yeah. hood on, it's the same he's, voice. I don't know if it was meant to be a mystery, though. On the it's not meant part. to be a mystery. It's meant to show that he is manipulating everything to get the power that he's trying to get. He's not shown to other people in this, he's shown to the audience. And the Phantom Menace is Darth Sidious. What Lucas is establishing here is the fact that Palpatine is manipulating all of this, all the Trade Federation, all the stopping of goods to Naboo. He's manipulating all of this to put himself in power and take over the galaxy. And you know what? I didn't really get that until I watched it for this viewing. I got to say, I haven't watched this movie too much over the years. I've watched it maybe once every five years when I go through the entire saga. And when I watched it for this and I watched it with a keen eye, I watched it with an eye trying to review it, I finally noticed that that's exactly what he's doing. He's manipulating everything to his own well-being. Yeah, I think that's exactly what he's doing. And I think the politics of this movie would play so much more now. Yeah, we always had politics. We always had evil politicians, including in the 90s. But late 90s, this was peacetime. I know that this <laughs> I was a soldier who never had to leave base because it was, you know, that's just how it was. If you were to have this now where your big bad is influencing the entire government and a takeover of the Senate and everything else, this would, well, it would get blasted and or lauded depending on your news program of choice, but it would feel so much. It would resonate so much more today just because of how the press plays into things. Yeah, we'll see that in the next few movies. Yeah. I, I just think also, Palpatine, it's not like Lex Luthor and BBS, you can actually see the through line to Palpatine's plan, but you only know that if you know Palpatine is Darth Sidious. Exactly. This makes the Jedi look so stupid in hindsight. <laughs> Everything in these movies makes this look freaking stupid. <laughs> I gotta say my point on the battle droids. I like uh-huh. them a lot. I like their design. I think they're cool. I have fun with them until somebody decides to point his droid finger in somebody's face later on in this movie. That's the point where I think it goes too far. But this is the most brilliant merchandising scam ever where you make one figure and you paint a different color shoulder. <laughs> and you get some people, I won't say who on this podcast, to buy six different versions of the same damn toy because they're rank. <laughs> because droids have military rank. Fucking brilliant. 
And those fuckers were hard to stand up to. I remember trying to like set up like boards and things with them, and they would always fall over. I fucking hated the design of these things. So they're like the movies. They're flimsy and useless. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you literally, by the end of it, you just push them over. Yep. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, they do counteract it at least with the mass quantity of droids you see later on. So it's, yeah. more, of the, it's more of the quantity versus quality thing on the Trade Federation. But purely aesthetic, I like the super battle droid designs we get later on, where they're a little bit bulkier. They got actual wrist cannons. They're not holding blasters. Yeah, if you guys are listening to the show, it's Star Wars. We're gonna get super deep into this shit. <laughs> well, I've been wanting to do these podcasts for years, yeah. so yeah, I'm we are going to blame my husband for me knowing all this shit. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, I will say the droid cars are pretty awesome. Yeah, I agree. The Jedi head down the ventilation shaft in a admittedly terrible effect. For all the <laughs> advancement in effects, this is look. This looks really bad. Yeah, there's, there's some things in this movie that have aged gracefully, uh-huh. all things considered. But th- there's some instances where it, it's. I mean, look, nothing lasts forever because look, Matrix came out the same year. Yeah, but there's stuff yeah. that that has not held up either. Specifically, the whole bullet time thing. That, the entire gimmick of the movie doesn't look great now. <laughs> well, this looks like they dropped two fucking action figures down a pipe. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> look, did. It's, not, it's not that Catwoman when they throw Sharon Stone off the building, but it's kind of Kenobi tells Qui-Gon how right he was about the short negotiations, which I thought was a clever line. Smart-ass kid. <laughs> <laughs> we then get a message from good old Queen Amidala, played by the professional herself, Natalie Portman. Let's talk about our queen here. Lucas did see the professional and knew right away he wanted Portman for this part. It took some negotiating as this was a three-picture deal, and by the end of it, she was going to college. And this was normally a deal-breaker, but Lucas was willing to work around her college schedule, which is actually very admirable. That being said, as good as she is in the professional, she is not very charismatic in this role. I'm not sure who else could have played it, as this is a young woman in power, and Portman could certainly exude that. But it's painful seeing her belt these lines out that even Mel Streep would struggle to say with conviction. Now, it should be said that she was miserable on the set. At one point, she is limping. That's because she had broken her leg during one scene <laughs> she did not enjoy being on the set and by the end of the series she really i mean they had to really convince her to come back i'm not sure i i love nally portman i don't like her in this role I, I just never liked padme as a character and that's going to carry through all three movies i don't know who else you could have cast that's the funny thing and we know nally portman can act this is the lucas thing you know he, t- he told her to be very one note with how she delivers when she's the queen because that's a reveal in and of itself that she has to be very stoic and almost like Queen Elizabethan, whether you look at her wardrobe. I mean, look, that shit changes more than frickin'... She's got, like, her own Ric Flair collection of robes. Because <laughs> she wears, like, three different crazy outfits in this movie. And I'm like, what is the appeal of these? Like, it, it looks like the Hunger Games. It looks nice. I'll say that. It looks kind of cool. It's, it's creative, but yeah, I... It's not her fault. There's nobody in these movies I can blame for being bad actors, and that includes Hayden Christensen next week. But again, you know, if you're going to say they should have gotten someone else, I'm like, okay, name them. Yeah, exactly. Fucking Natasha Lyonne. Who else was of of this age around this time? Uh, Because she was, what, 16, 17? Yeah, she was 16. And here's part of the problem with casting Nellie Portman in this role. We had already seen her be a quote-unquote adult in The Professional. She is groomed to be a hit woman in that movie, and she's already pretty much an adult by the end of that film. We have never seen her be this innocent person who eventually becomes a woman. She's been a woman the entire time she's been on screen. So the fact that she's here playing this queen, it really just shows that 
she's just not right for this role. And you're right. There's no one else I could pick. And I'm not going to blame it on her as much as I'm just going to blame it on the writing and the directing. This was, I was wrong earlier. This is the one actor that I was excited to see because I love the professional. Love it then, love it now. Even with the issues of the director of that film. Mm -hmm. um, she is fantastic and Jean Renault is phenomenal. So yeah, her, if anybody, was the one I was looking forward to. That said, she doesn't want to be here. Lucas doesn't have an ability to direct. Who else could they have cast? I don't know. Her handmaiden? Oh. Ah, Kira Knightley. Because <laughs> Kira Knightley true. auditioned and, you know, uh, that's the role she got. But she was a couple years, I think she's two years younger. Mm -hmm. And putting a 15, 16-year-old female on a set and you're the only underage girl, I question that choice. I know it's hindsight, but I question that choice to write that character that way. It's I just don't like it. I think they could have done better. I think George could have and should have done better. This goes back to casting 17-year-old Carrie Fisher and not letting her wear a bra. This goes into wanting Harrison Ford in Indiana Jones to sleep with students. Maybe change some of this around a little bit. Because I, I think the character itself is problematic. I just don't like it. Amadala says the trade boycott has ended. And she says the trade federation has gone too far this time. This trade federation and their lip movements <laughs> just oh, match. This shit's like watching those old Godzilla movies. It really is. Out. And I don't just say that because they're Japanese. <laughs> and the only one of the only practicals in this, and yeah, they can't make it look great. Mm -hmm. The Queen reinforces that she will not condone a course of action that will lead them to war. Rutherford Hayes looking son of a bitch on the on her, on her council. Yeah. Like this guy's so useless in all these movies. Her, her legal counsel. Yeah. Mm -hmm. This whole thing is we should just surrender. <laughs> we cut to Naboo as ships are flying in, and I do like seeing the battle droids and tracking shots of them flying across the camera. I think these are some pretty cool shots. Agreed. We then cut to our buddy Jar Jar. Jar Jar Binks as he's running from machines, attacking his planet, and he comes across the Jedi's as Qui-Gon saves him from a battle droid. Ah, uh, Jar Jar, named after what Lucas's son called trucks out his window as Lucas drove. Big sticking point of this trilogy. God, did this character just take a lashing. Ahmed Best, bless his soul, has he has said that it almost drove him to suicide at one point. On the set, Michael Jackson came to visit, and that was a huge highlight of his. He must have been feeling like he was riding on top of the world, being in this massive movie, massive anticipated movie. And God, this character took such a drubbing that the actor took the backlash, and it's not fair. Do we think that Jar Jar's here just so Lucas and his team could say that they made a whole CGI creation? I, I don't know. What do you guys feel about Jar Jar Binks in this film? He's here for the kids. Let's not forget these movies are designed ultimately for kids at heart and people who act like kids on the Internet. Let's be honest. <laughs> I have never outright despised Jar Jar. There are times where it's really overboard, but that's not until we get to Tatooine. I think here early on, because even this whole fucking species hates him, they really play the sympathy card for you. But at least he does stuff to enhance the plot. He's actually useful. To the point, though, where even Lucas is like, all right, he got so much backlash, I'm going to make him the, the scapegoat for Palpatine. That was great. <laughs> and he also thought about he also thought about naming Attack of the Clones after him, too. Yeah, it was like Jar Jar's Big Adventure or yeah, something was yeah. what, what it was going to be called. Mm -hmm. I kind of wish he did it just to set the internet on fire. Me too. But, but ultimately, you know, at least he's functional part of the story. He gets on my nerves on certain points, but when you ask me if he's the most problematic character in this movie, I would say no. I agree, and we'll definitely get to that character. 
much to Matt's point. I think there's points where it kind of goes a little too far and stuff like that, a little slapsticky. But as George said, you make this for kids. You make this for families. I've never had a massive problem with Jar Jar. There's times that I like him more than others. He's not the issue, really. I feel for Ahmed Best a lot. That he took so much is so freaking unfair and ridiculous. I'm glad that he's got a chance to be redeemed twice. He did, which I thought was a fun Star Wars Temple Run show that was short-lived, and for some reason, Lucasfilm put it on freaking YouTube instead of on Disney+. Plus. It was kind of a remake of Challenge of the Hidden Temple, but in Star Wars. And it's fun. He does that. And then in Mandalorian last season, he was the one that helped save Jedis from the temple. They had Ahmed Best. Oh, that was him? As, as oh. a Jedi. Uh-huh. Nice. Kellen Bell or Bull or something like that. He's the one that rescued Grogu and got him out of the temple. So I'm glad to see him kind of get his due a little bit. But I'm going to say something here, and this is me speaking, so y'all can come at me. Oh. Jar Jar Binks is less annoying than C-3PO. And if you want to talk about characters that are annoying as shit, I would rather have Jar Jar Binks than frickin' Goldenrod. That is a weird mountain to die on, my friend. (laughs) But you know what? Do me a favor. Dig a second grave, because I'm with you. (laughs) Man. C-3PO's more useful than Jar Jar is, for Christ's sake. (laughs) (laughs) That's debatable. Other than being a computer, I don't know. <laughs> let's be honest, R2-D2 does all the work in that duo. He, he's the Ben Affleck and the Ben Affleck-Matt Damon duo <laughs> when they were writing Goodwill Hunting. Jar Jar tells Qui-Gon he is his humble servant as Qui-Gon takes out another battle droid. I, I gotta tell you, people had this backlash against Jar Jar, but when I saw this in theaters, every single kid in the audience laughed their asses off at everything Jar Jar did. So maybe Lucas was right. Uh, and also, this is where you can really tell Liam Neeson does not want to be there. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> Anytime he is with Jar Jar exclusively. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, it, it is just this face of, I can't believe what I have to deal with. Exactly. Yeah, when he has to duck, like... It's just... Yeah, and I just don't think he's he's an actor who can fully adapt to green screen or CG. It's like that clip of Ian McKellen on the first Hobbit movie where he put his freaking hands in his head. Mm-hmm. He's like, I can't deal with this level of... And look, compared to the other two movies, a lot more practical stuff in this one. You know, they, they built actual sets. There's a lot of on-location shooting. They use some good miniatures later on. It's not the CGI wonderland that people think of with Star Wars prequels. At least not yet. Not yet. Yeah. We're going to talk about another established actor who had a real problem with the CG in this movie. <laughs> Speaking of Superman. Exactly. <laughs> it's all connected, everybody. <laughs> Jar Jar tells the Jedi Knights that his village will do terrible things to him if he goes back, but eventually he caves and agrees to take them to his home. They go underwater to a whole world that James Cameron would be proud of and enter a temple. It's beautiful, yeah. I gotta say, this in 3D was marvelous. They enter a temple and Jar Jar is told he's in big poodoo this time. (laughs) Qui-Gon pleads his case about how the Gungans must warn Naboo of the droid army, but Bosa is having none of it. But he does give them a transport. Qui-Gon isn't satisfied with this as he wants Jar Jar as his navigator, because as he mentioned, he has to serve a life debt. And this establishes something very important. I'm not making a joke about this when I say this. Obi-Wan does not like being saddled with anyone else, because he tells Qui-Gon, why are we bringing him along? This is stupid. Yeah. Same thing with Anakin later on. He's got a codependent relationship with his master. He doesn't like being challenged. I'm convinced that if Darth Maul didn't wipe him out, Obi-Wan was going to kill him in his sleep like that Darth Plagueis story. (laughs) Obi-Wan in these movies, he becomes Dumbledore, where you're like, oh yeah, he's kind of an asshole. When you think- 
They leave and are almost swallowed whole, but they're saved by a much bigger creature, and Qui-Gon uses a phrase I still use today. There's always a bigger fish. <laughs> Adam, you sigh. Why do you sigh at that? This, because we went underwater just to go to one place, just to go underwater to go to another place. <laughs> this movie ends up on rewatches feeling long and partially burdened, and some of this is the reason why. <laughs> and uh, yeah, yeah, just to get, I don't know, I guess a probably an old saying that George Lucas liked that he read in a book somewhere. It's probably a Kurosawa saying somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure Toshiro Mifun said it in one of Kurosawa's movies. But yeah, I don't like scenes like this because they don't serve any narrative purpose. It's just a big, ch- it's a pointless chase scene. You should have just had them go straight onto the transport and they show up in Naboo. And this felt like them flexing their muscles with the effects because you got like three different creatures. Mm-hmm. You got like the giant angler fish, you got a crocodile, you got a lizard looking thing. But you know what I resent is every Star Wars show that's on right now does some form of this where I end up saying aloud, damn it, to Garrett's point, there's always a bigger fish. This is also where Jar Jar says he was banned from his home world because he was clumsy. Let me tell you, if this is what got things banished out there, I'd be fucking dead. <laughs> yes, you would. <laughs> Yeah, there'd be a whole subsection of California that would be wiped off the face of the planet. The Viceroy say the invasion is on schedule, but he doesn't even mention the Jedi. We get another chase underwater as the Jedi escape. We then get another establishing shot of the battle droids on Naboo as the Queen looks out the window, and then the Queen gets captured. Or so they think. The Jedi take out the battle droids, and Qui-Gon says it's urgent that they make contact with the Republic. The Jedi take out even more battle droids. There's a lot of fucking battle droid battles here. It's in the name. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, at least the Trade Federation what they pay for. Exactly. They get on the ship, and this is where we are reintroduced to R2-D2, and we establish that the heroics he displayed in the previous trilogy were well established before then. I don't have a problem with this scene and concept. I have a problem with how this looks as these droids are being taken out. It looks really bad, but I love how R2 is actually rescuing them here. This is when it comes to the... Too small a world? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what it is. Sometimes I like it and keep that going because that's going to continue. I kind of dig the way that it looks, that they're on the ship and they're flying away. And it's not a lingering death. It's a boom. (laughs) They get hit by a blast and it explodes. (laughs) I remember chuckling when it happens. But when they all go up there, of course R2 is going to save them. So it's not... It ain't bad. I just don't love it. And yeah, I don't need R2 showing up here. Yeah, I'm not a fan of the way these movies, and I think this is a criticism that's valid, is the the shrinkage of the galaxy. A lot of coincidences. And it would, it, it, if he wasn't the same exact color palette that he always was, maybe it could have been less obvious. Yeah. Like maybe he gets, he gets a paint job later on, so he, he looks different because they become wanted criminals because... Vader knows the connection, and that's why he has a cosmetic bent over. But as soon as you see that, he's so distinct that you know that's R two, and because of that, you know he's not going to get blown off the side of the sh- blown off the side of the ship. <laughs> but you got to remember that when Lucas did that original trilogy, how is he going to know that those droids would be as popular as they became? So I think he felt obligated to include them here. But we'll talk about the other one. I think the way R two is reintroduced isn't bad. I actually kind of like it. Oh, by comparison, absolutely. Yeah, no, I'm not saying it's bad. It's just, you give me a choice, I think you write this differently. I also didn't need the, what's its name? R2-D2. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, we, we fucking know. You don't need to spell it out. <laughs> Literally spelled it out. R2-D2. 
Oh, well, they found it on his... Yeah. You might as well have called him... Uh, let me see. Real two... Di- like, go ahead and do the full, you know, behind the scenes of how the name came about. And they literally... They think I'm... It's like, back to work, slave. <laughs> R2 gives the ship more power as they escape the blockade, but the main power line is leaking, so they need to go somewhere for repairs, and wouldn't you know it, there's Tatooine! Speaking of trends, this movie starts in the Star Wars universe. Oh, yeah. There must be an inescapable tractor beam around Tatooine because they, <laughs> can't, fucking, they can't get away from it. It's a necessity in this movie, given the context. Yes. I will allow it here, but the witness can sustain, but we shouldn't keep calling this fucking witness, for God's sake. Sidious tells the Viceroy that with the assistance of his new apprentice, Darth Maul, they will find the ship. Oh, Adam, remember the lead-up to this, that Premiere Magazine cover with Maul's face? This was a big sticking point. People were really excited to see this character in action. People thought that this was going to be the Darth Vader of this trilogy. Except for the religious groups who said they were invoking devil imagery. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's definitely what he is evoking. It is an evil character, but he doesn't really get to do much in this. Yeah, it's um, Lucas Trope. It's all aesthetic. I mean, he's got a very provocative look. Much like Darth Vader, it's recognizable. It's unique. Much like Darth Vader, although to a further extent, made a few words. He's in the Vader role from A New Hope where he, where he is the muscle. Yeah, yeah, he's the muscle, exactly. Um, yeah. So I, I like that. And I do like that. One, one thing I, I really like about the prequels, I don't know if this was intentional or not. All of the Padawans for the Sith put pieces of the Darth Vader puzzle together. They're all reflections in some mm-hmm. way. Much like A New Hope, Maul represents the unkillable muscle that Vader was in A New Hope. He's all anger, he's all emotion, and much like Vader, he's kind of beaten by overconfidence. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, to be fair, I mean, everybody was saying this was going to be the Darth Vader, but Lucas never said that. In fact, he killed him off in this movie just because he wanted a new threat each movie, and he didn't want Maul to overshadow Darth Vader himself. I get that logic, and I have never been against taking this character out in this movie, even though everybody seems to be. That's because of what they've done with the character since. Which, for the record, I've always been against bringing Darth Maul back because he got cut in half and fell a considerable distance. I understand that lightsabers cauterize anything they go through, but he fell like frickin' Jack Nicholson did at the end of Batman. While being cut in half. And and they somehow (laughs) bring this character back. I'm like... (laughs) <laughs> well, they were talking about that even before that, though, Matt. They were talking about this even before that. You know, when people came out of this movie, that was a big thing people hated was, why are you taking out the coolest character of the tr- of the series? Well, because the word character is loosely used. He is like those James Bond henchmen that are not named Oddjob or Jaws, mm-hmm. where all he is is a lot. He's not a character. I'm sorry. So I understand killing him off in this. Yeah, me too. Yeah, it would be like giving Boba Fett his own TV series and expecting it to be any good. <laughs> They land on Tatooine, and Qui-Gon tells Obi-Wan to not let them send any new transmissions as they leave. So Obi-Wan, has, to Matt's point, is just stuck guarding the ship for the next 45 minutes. There's, there's, other, there's actual soldiers that should be on that ship. Yeah. Why is Obi-Wan stuck on, like, this is the shit that Batman makes Robin do? Yeah. <laughs> and, you wonder, and you wonder why Robin is so resentful. <laughs> Can the Queen's people maybe yeah. do something? <laughs> yeah, why are you sending the Queen in a dirty place that, for all you know, could be like the Wild Wild West, and she could be shot down at any moment? <laughs> the Queen insists that Padme go with them, or so they think it's Padme. 
Who's who here? That was a big question of mine. When I came out of this, I was like, okay, so there's going to be a reveal that Padme has actually been the queen the entire time. So does that mean Padme is making the queen clean our two? Like, <laughs> what are we doing here? There's a scene where Padme's like, yeah, go clean R2. You know, we think it's the queen, but it's actually Padme who does that. It's it's really weird, the switcheroo that Lucas does with this, these two characters. Yeah, because it, it's Padme and Sabe, I think, are the two. Yeah. yeah. Sabe, Corday. It's one of those two. I no, think it's Corday in this one. I think it's Sabe in the next one. Yeah, Corday's Rose Byrne. Yeah, and, and unless you're you're paying attention... Natalie Portman's in so much makeup that it's kind of yes. hard. It looks so similar as it is. By the way, Natalie Portman was a fucking bully to Kira Knightley on this set. I don't know That's if you've ever heard. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which is sad, because honestly, I take Kira Knightley's a much better actress. But, uh, I mean, but yeah, I, yeah, she got pirates a couple years after this, so it's not like she fell into obscurity. No, she didn't suffer. It makes me laugh, because I think it's intentional when she's telling, go clean the battle droid. Like, I think it's a weak and a nod that, ha, I get to tell the queen to do something because I can. <laughs> so I actually have fun, and yeah, I think that they've already switched at that point. They walk around Tatooine until they come across Watto, who houses a certain boy as a servant. So, Watto, I think, is the most obnoxious character in this movie. I love Watto. And holy Jewish stereotypes, Batman. I was thinking he's Italian. I didn't get Jewish stereotypes. He's got the big nose. He only cares about money. Italian? He talks with his hands. In the next movie, movie, he's wearing a yarmulke. Um, oh shit! Like, you're right. Like, this guy does everything except saying Anakin. Go! I I have to go to the Wailing Wall. Like I'm like, oh my god! Why don't you just have him unwrapping a white fish while he fucking deals diamonds? Like, oh my god! Jedi monsters don't work. Only money. Oh shit! Yeah, like this. I don't think I'm reading between the lines here. <laughs> this is when we meet Anakin Skywalker, aka Jake Lloyd. Now. Lloyd has been very vocal in the press saying that this movie pretty much ruined his life. Personally, I would have thought Jingle All the Way would have probably done that before this hey. one. That's what got him the role. Hey. George Lucas turned to, to McCallum and said, go find me that young actor. Here's the funny thing. They auditioned hundreds and hundreds of actors. I remember this was in all the trade magazines. Was They are looking for the new Anakin. Around the world. Yes. Open casting calls. And this is who they settled on? Yeah, George's choice. He chose him. <laughs> you know, it's funny. You know what I was thinking just now? I'm like, if they waited a year, a couple years, Jamie Radcliffe was right there. Oh, yeah. Look, Lloyd has taken a drubbing, and even then, when all you really had were maybe message boards, it certainly couldn't have been easy for a kid of 10 years old to constantly hear how much he sucked. God, no. It's completely yeah. unfair to this poor kid growing up, you know, yeah. during the time that the media was blowing up, the internet was blowing up, mm-hmm. that he had to face everything he faced. I think he plays a naive kid fine. My problem was the establishing of this character we know is going to be Darth Vader. If Lucas wanted to tell us that this innocent boy becomes the instrument of evil that terrorizes the galaxy, he does not do a good job of it. The conflict here consists of of him winning a pod race and blowing up a starship at the end of this movie. Where is the innocence? Where is the tragedy? I know Lucas was setting us up for it, but the thick and grand scheme of things, I feel he failed at what we were promised. Well, there's a bigger problem, too. For a kid who is going to grow up to be the ultimate representation of evil in the universe, for a slave, he lives a pretty good life, all things considered. (laughs) You know, this is a kid who should be whipped. He should be mistreated. He should be angry at the world. But he's saying yippee and all this stuff. Like, it's such a such a stark contradiction that it feels so rushed when they try to develop him later on and get him to that spot where he's all anger and emotion. And I also think it was a mistake to start him this young. Yeah, yeah I'm with you. He should have been a teenager. Because mm-hmm. that you're already, you know, your hormones are all over the place. If him and Obi-Wan were closer in age, 
you have that big brother, little brother dynamic that you could really play off of. And it would add more hubris to Qui-Gon's part looking at this teenager and being like, oh, I can I can manage him. But like I said, for all the stuff that we're going to know about Vader, that he's a slave, but it's like he can come and go as he pleases. And there's a line where they say they have, like, the Suicide Squad bombs in their head. Yeah. But I'm like, this life is not as harsh as it should be, given where this character is going to be. Yeah, I, you know, I've never really felt that Jake Lloyd was bad with what he was asked to do. I think he did exactly what was asked of him. You know what? I think he might be better than Natalie Portman in this film. Wow. Boy, hot <laughs> you know? take city Adam Bunch is I mean, coming but, from. But seriously, he's asked to be a little kid, and he does that. I do think the reasoning for him to turn into Darth Vader is set up wonderfully in this, and I think they completely missed the boat later on. I just think that they also allow him, because of his age, to Matt's point, they should have been older, that it's just too much of the kiddiness there. And unless they just want the kids to think, hey, I hope you like this kid because I can't wait to tear out your hearts and make him the big bad of the galaxy, why make him this kiddified when we already know who he becomes? And in this movie, there's not enough signs of him foreshadowing that potential. Yeah, the nightmares we see in the next film. The only thing he does is give Mace Windu a look, but I think that's just because he's racist deep down. That's the angriest he gets is when the black guy tells him he can't be a Jedi. <laughs> Have you seen how angry the black guy is in this movie? <laughs> Ask to see his wallet. <laughs> we get the whole, were you an angel conversation. A conversation that even at that time, Lloyd was like, I have to fucking give this speech. <laughs> <sighs> and by the way, at the time of filming, Lloyd was nine, Portman was 16. This God, comes I off hate- as kind of weird. Yeah, and it it makes the uh, slow down, Woody Allen. Um, <laughs> Other way, <laughs> but, but it, yeah, but but it also it makes a time jump. It still makes it awkward. Yeah, because she's like, "Oh, you'll always be that little boy on Tatooine." I'm like, "Oh my god, that's so wrong." <laughs> Especially with what happens in that same film and what yeah. she does to him in that movie. Yeah, more Jar Jar antics as he is told to hit the nose of a droid to shut it up. <laughs> I like these little pit droids. You would. These things are cool. You know what? They actually brought them into Star Tours at Disneyland. Even. Oh, did they? Yeah, that while you're waiting to board your speeder, the screens show them working on the speeder you're about to get on. Yep, mm. and you can dropkick them as they walk by. <laughs> Qui-Gon tries using some Jedi influence to bring down the price of the hyperdrive, but Watto isn't budging. And like Jabba, Jedi mind tricks won't work on him. Yeah, you Jedi goyim. <laughs> <laughs> Qui-Gon thinks about using the Queen's wardrobe to buy the hyperdrive, but they need to find another solution. I wanted to see that scene. Well, they could sell her into slavery. (laughs) Yeah, right? (laughs) Is it bad that I actually have the Queen Amidala multiple dress doll somewhere in storage? Yes, yes, it is. Came with like four outfits. (laughs) I will say, I mean, a lot of criticism you can lay on this movie. I think the costuming is actually pretty good. Oh, yeah. All the technical stuff I have no problems with, but I'm, I'm watching this movie as a grown man going, really? This movie's all about, for a huge chunk of it, trying to get off a planet and win a race. Yes. Boy, that's a big jump for Star Wars. Like, all of a sudden it becomes Days of Thunder. <laughs> around the corner comes Call Truckle. Coming around the corner. Jar Jar picks a fight with Sebulba as a sandstorm makes its way in. And again gets a glance at Qui-Gon's lightsaber, so now he knows that Qui-Gon's a Jedi. They make their way in as Shami, his mom, meets the gang... And again, also shows the gang his new project, an unfinished C-3PO. And boy, does this cause problems from the previous trilogy. 
you think? Oh, uh, yeah, especially because Darth Vader walks by him at one point. Exactly! Uh, hey, old man with a teenage boy, you want to come see my sex robot? <laughs> yeah, imagine if he was 16. This droid would have a whole other purpose. <laughs> but, yeah, this is, again, condensing the universe. And if you were going to have C-3PO in this movie, do something else with him. He doesn't need to be Darth Vader's personal pet project. Yeah. 3PO meets R2-D2, even though he embarrassingly has his parts showing. We cut to Coruscant as Maul gets his orders from Sidious. And we hear all slaves have a transmitter located somewhere in them, and Anakin hasn't been able to locate his yet. Anakin says he knows how to pod race. And then he says he had a dream that he was a Jedi, and he came to free all the slaves. That, that, this, right here, this sets up everything that should be his fault. It does. And they freaking ignore it. Hmm. (laughs) Did you notice that even then? Yes, every good reason is set up here, including who he meets in just a minute. We also hear that the weakness of the slave traders is a weakness I see every day at my job. Their weakness is gambling, and this is what gives Qui-Gon an idea of putting Anakin and the parts up in a bet that Anakin can win the race. Boy, Matt, this is a 1985 Vince McMahon-type gamble, isn't it? Yeah, and, and, you know, he even pulls another trick. He can't convince Watto, but he still moves the die. Yeah. You know, Watto should have thrown it out right there. Be like, the deal's off. You cheated. Because Watto Watto has all the leverage. He does. Yeah, for all the things that they won't do, and I've had this conversation, why don't they do this, 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 and this plan? Oh, well, they can't do that. They're Jedi. They're righteous. They One, screw you. No, they're not. But he still cheated here to get what he wanted, which means the other decisions he could have made, like, I don't know, levitating this hyperdrive out of the freaking junkyard so they could just take off. It just doesn't, it just doesn't fit. Yeah, why don't they just go into the salvage yard and pay for part for a new ship. Is there something like the plans of the Death Star on the royal ship that they need? Use that super speed to get it that you showed at the beginning of this film and you never, ever show again in this entire nonology. Shami and Qui-Gon have a conversation about Anakin's Jedi traits, and Shami reveals that he didn't have a father and his birth was an immaculate conception. Oh, fuck, George. Matt, what the fuck is up with this year's slate of movies and Christ metaphors? Oh, oh my god. You know, it's like poetry, it rhymes. Um, <laughs> yeah, so the thing I resist the most, and, and this gets really convoluted, because I don't even think George knows, the prophecy about the Chosen One, designed to bring balance to the Force, but it never specifically says how. Yeah. Was that Anakin giving birth to Luke, who balances things out? Is it Anakin by himself was destined, you know, like a, a slave child is going to bring balance to the Force? It's never said, I don't think, in any of these movies, what the prophecy actually means. Yeah, I didn't like it then. I didn't like it now. I think it gives you an out. You're like, you know what, I don't feel like explaining it, so no. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's just, just because, yeah, it's it's lazy. More Jar Jar antics involving the racing pod and his tongue, and 3PO tells R2 he finds this Jar Jar character a little odd. We then get a triumphant score from John Williams as Anakin turns on his pod and says, It's working! And I gotta say, this is the best Jake Lloyd is in this movie because he's having fun, and I actually feel his emotion as he actually gets his pod to get racing shape. I like this scene a lot. You know where it works for me is you see Shmi also looking on. Yeah. And she starts to know that his life is about to change. There is one actor putting up a really good performance, and it's her. You have always been a Shami fucking defender, ever since I've known I, you in this I movie. Think she, I think she steals the show with the little bit amount of time that she has. I think she is fantastic, and I think she brings heart when nobody else is acting. 
acting like they didn't care to deliver a line. Qui-Gon then sends Obi-Wan Anakin's metachlorian count. <laughs> and give him COVID test. And Obi-Wan <laughs> reveals that even Master Yoda doesn't have an account doesn't have a count that high. The second time they name drop Yoda too. Yeah. Yeah. Alright, let's talk about Metachlorians. Um you know Lucas he could do whatever he wants with the story he's telling. I have no problems with him establishing anything he wants to establish in this movie. He is the one telling the story. But if you're going to give a biological reason for a magical force that we were told about by Obi-Wan, this is to satisfy people who say, well, the force has no rules. Well, now he's establishing there's a biological reason, not a magical reason. And I think this takes everything I loved about the force away. Well, now, I don't agree with Dizzy's decision to actually ixnay this from the time they got it. I thought that was a stupid fucking decision that they're like, well, we're, ju- we're just going to take those out because we're going to please the fans. Ho, ho, ho. And I'll talk about that when we get to those movies. But I also just, if you give it a biological reason, I'm just so angry. Well, it's part for the course of what George Lucas did in these movies is that in large part, he removed the mythology of Star Wars. You know, whether it's with characters, whether it's with circumstance, ultimately the force by creating a predetermined explanation for who can use the Force and who doesn't, you remove the ability for the audience to feel like they can put themselves in a character's shoes, that they can be a Jedi. To say that you can only do it if you have this tertiary life force in you, I think that's kind of that's kind of horseshit, especially with how, not just in these movies, in the franchise, how loose they are with the Force in every other aspect. But to have a finite reason why people can use it is really stupid. Because... Outside of this, the Force has no rules, but yet they're so stuck on this one little detail that predetermines your ability to use it, apparently. I've never liked the midichlorians. I don't blame Disney. I blame George. He drops it after this as well. So No, he doesn't. It, yes, he does. No, it's, it's, in, it's in the sequels. Oh, wow. I guess I'm going to have to re-remember that. God damn it. But you know what's more troublesome is he had an idea that he was going to have a story, a movie, that was going to take place biologically. It was going to be like a microscopic Star Wars story. So he wasn't done with this, but man, it is such a bad idea. We see Darth Maul land his ship, and he does indeed look pretty badass as he leaves his ship and sends the, these droids after. Yeah, I was surprised Ray Park didn't sweat all that makeup off being in the desert. Oh, I know. Work. And that was filmed that during the daytime, too. They colored that palette up. He must have been miserable in his makeup. 3PL insists that they'll never get him on one of those dreaded starships. And Anakin reveals he's never even finished a race. <laughs> so this is a 1990 Buster Douglas type bet if I ever saw one. Like, this fucking kid has no chance of winning this race. This is fun. Yeah. I didn't like Natalie Portman's response. Yeah. <laughs> never even finished a race. Never finished. <laughs> and she's oh, just being like, finish later on when she's legal. <laughs> <laughs> oh. He finished before then. <laughs> Yeah, C-3PO was programmed. Sorry, so there's, certain things, there's certain things he wiped his memory multiple times. So we're getting the pageantry of the race, and I do love how Lucas is setting this up. As we've said in Star Wars Podcast Pass, he loves car racing and seeing how fast cars go, and this has all the makings of one of those massive NASCAR races with the flags and announcers. I've even seen a creature fart in the face of a Gungan at one or two of these races. Um... <laughs> I don't know. I think this is all being set up nice. You know, we haven't talked much about Williams scoring this movie. There's not much to really talk about. There are a couple of really good pieces. Of course, we talked about The Duel of the Fates, which is still to this day fantastic, and I still listen to it every once in a while while I exercise. What do you guys think about the way Williams reapproached this? I mean, this is 16 years after the previous time he worked on it. I think he holds it up pretty well. 
I think it's amazing. I feel like there's more. I think that this just, you know, tries to do more cues for more th- specific things. But I think the, the score in this is absolutely phenomenal. In this race, because you have the score and then it drops, and Ben Burt does his magic that he does just for the score to come back into it. But once the race starts, in the packing tree leading up to it, there's things in this movie that make it longer than it needs to be. And, and part of it is here. But once this race starts, and it's nothing except an homage to Ben-Hur, this pod race is amazing. And it's one of the two cornerstones of this film. And wow. Absolutely wow. Remember the video game that this that oh, they made based that on game. this? Oh that you God, sat inside hard. a full-size pod? Oh, yeah. That Fucking, thing was difficult as hell. It you was add, so hard. You, yeah. There was no way to cheat controls. You had to really yeah. know what you were doing. That thing oh, you're talking about the one in arcade. Yeah, yeah. you're talking about the one in arcade. But there oh, was the N64 cool. one, too, yeah. That one was hard, though, on the N64. Mm-hmm. Yep. Although, I don't like that you could just crash and respawn. I don't like that. Speaking of respawns, I wish they could have respawned and re-edited this and made it about half the length. I really? don't need to see five minutes of people walking out with fucking flags. See, that sets it up, Matt. You're, the setup has already been established because they talk about that these are life and death races. And you've already set up the stakes by saying Anakin has never finished one. I don't need to see that. I don't need to see Jabba. I don't need to see this two-headed dipshit announcer. <laughs> Great boobs. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't need to see Jar Jar experimenting with German Schatza. Um, <laughs> it's a hallmark because it's the second longest scene in the movie. <laughs> well, once the race starts, I'll go ahead and say it. There are great things here. We're seeing Tusken Raiders pick off racers one by one. I thought that was fun. The Jawas yeah. watching. Every time you see a sand person now, Star Wars has had to do such a 180 on the sand people. <laughs> We're seeing Jawas just kind of watch it as the, as the racers are flying by. And the workout your sound system gets in this race is tremendous. To your point, Adam, the sound work by Ben Burt here. And Williams does turn off his score for a bit as Ben Burt is able to shine here. I think another thing this, this race does, too, is it gives the movie a new energy. Because this stuff on Tatooine, you know, we, we've said it. This movie could be about 15 minutes shorter. We could have done without a lot of the stuff here. But the energy this race brings is pretty awesome. And I'm going to go against Matt, and I think, again... Lucas loves races, and he wanted to show this. He wanted this to make the cornerstone. He wanted this to be the thing that Qui Gon sees and actually is able to see. Oh yeah, this is the guy who's going to bring balance because of what he does in this race. And we also don't have to have Jake Lloyd acting. Wind blows through his hair, and we're getting all these establishing shots of him avoiding all these racers. I think it's a good way of using Jake Lloyd, and I think it's a pretty tremendous scene. Of course, the race comes down to Anakin and Sebulba. Anakin takes him out and finishes the race. It's never in doubt, but I think Lucas wants to establish the instincts that he saw in Anakin. So again. Well, he's trying to do the POV face shots is what he did with Luke in A New Hope when he's in the X-Wing. Mm-hmm. Those are good parallels, but I think Qui-Gon was going to pick whoever won the race. He's like, if Sebulba won, I'll train him. Fuck it. <laughs> Which, by the way, dude couldn't Sebulba hold a lightsaber? What are you talking about? <laughs> Sebulba is now canonically still alive because he's in the special editions of Return of the Jedi. Is he really? He's in Jabba's palace before that dance number. Oh, yeah. And because death means nothing in Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> Anakin says goodbye to his mom as she tells him to be brave and don't look back. And another good piece by Williams plays. And it's almost sad to see Watto as he's forced to give Anakin up here. But this scene with uh, Anakin's mom, Adam, I think you'd agree, is pretty good. It gives me chills. And it's yeah. I do think it's one of those... It doesn't need to bring a tear, but it can make you well up to watch this parent standing there alone because Qui-Gon decided that he was going to stay the night and then leave her the next day and take her only child away. (laughs) 
Yeah, no, they're not a religious allegory whatsoever. Exactly. Um, and leave his slave mother on this planet because yep. that's not going to mess up the child's mind whatsoever. Again, to me, this is the setup to be Darth Vader. And it is, but I don't think it's done right. To me, this is why he becomes Darth Vader. The Jedi never let him come back to save his mother. Or, or save all the slaves. Yep. The slave, or even that's the break with him and Obi-Wan, that Obi-Wan knew she stayed a slave and kept it from Anakin. I think that is something that would turn these two brothers into fighting on a volcano. Well, I think there's a million other things they could have come up with versus what they actually did. This is the only scene in the movie with genuine emotion in it. Mm. It plays like it's in an actual movie. Everything else, <laughs> like, because so much of this movie, it's very, a lot of it is very laborious. And the, the dialogue is one note. I know everyone and their mother says this. So many people have said it, you could almost take it as fact. Everybody knows the dialogue in this movie sucks, the cadence is terrible, but this is actually composed like an actual scene in a movie to get this an emotion out of you. If you would not have told me that George Lucas directed the scene and said, hey, name one scene that he didn't direct, it would be this one. It feels like somebody else did it. It's too bad we didn't do this podcast back in 1999 because I would have loved to have seen on Rotten Tomatoes. This is the only scene that makes it look like a movie. <laughs> Qui-Gon brings the hyperdrive to Obi-Wan, and as they take off, we get the first fight between Qui-Gon and Darth Maul, and it's a nice little tease for what we're going to get later on. This is, I mean, we've not seen great Jedi battles. No. So to have this devil on this little swoop bike jump off and just start whooping ass right mm-hmm. away, there's no pretense, there's no way, he just jumps off and starts swinging. And at this point, he's only using, you know, he hasn't done the double sword yet. Like, he's still using that single sword. So, again, this is just a tease. And uh, I like yeah, the way it's pulled the tra- off. And the trailer showed that double saber. So yep. we know it's coming. Yep. But to see him here with just the one is, is yeah, it's pretty rad. Qui-Gon gets on the ship and introduces Anakin to Obi-Wan because we need this scene. <laughs> Padme tells Anakin that the queen is worried about her people as Anakin gives her a Japor snippet as he reveals that he misses his mother. They land on Coruscant as Palpatine introduces himself, and here's the famous scene where Zod himself was excited to be working with Natalie Portman, but it turned out he was working with a tennis ball instead. <laughs> well, to, be, to be fair, you really couldn't tell the difference between Portman and a tennis ball in this movie anyway. Um, <laughs> but it was after this that <laughs> Terrence Stamp was like, you know what, this is my one and only Star Wars film, I'm not coming back. Yeah, uh, he was kneeling before George Lucas, <laughs> saying, do something else for the love of God. Yeah. This man really, you talk about someone just not knowing what they were signing up for, this hey, is yeah. He's a plot device. He's only here so he gets usurped by Palpatine. Exactly, yeah. And you've got Terrence Stamp for it. Like, that's such a waste. Yep. Well, they were going to do more with him, but Stamp, again, just, yeah. he didn't want to come back. Palpatine gives his case of there being no interest in the common good and that valor has no power, only accusations of corruption. Lucas is really going for the political throat here, isn't he? (laughs) (laughs) Meanwhile, Qui-Gon goes before Yoda and Samuel motherfucking Jackson led Jedi Council to say he not only encountered a Sith Lord on Tatooine, he wants permission to train the boy who he believes will bring balance to the Force. Matt, I think you've wailed about this before. Prophecies. Yeah, it's a storytelling device that I hate if it's not clearly defined. Harry Potter introduces a prophecy, but it's very clear what the rules of it are. I hate everything with the Jedi and these goddamn prequels. Um, they're arrogant, they're unlikable, they're all stoic as fuck. 
I don't know exactly what they do. They just act like puppets to whoever is the chancellor. What am I supposed to like about being a Jedi? All the stuff Luke was being sold on. The good thing the Jedi weren't around because he would have had a disappointment sandwich for lunch. It's the equivalent of going to the missionary to be a priest, where it's like, yep, you got to retire your dick. You can't think for yourself. You have to drink the proverbial Kool-Aid. What's cool about being a Jedi outside of a lightsaber, and they even tell you, only use it for defense. They're all pompous. Mace Windu is just a dick. Yoda is the only one that seems to have any sort of life, and it wasn't until they replaced that puppet. I was going to say, yeah, let's talk about Yoda. Replaced with this. a puppet, yeah. I mean, I was excited because I was going to see Yoda back in these prequels, and we didn't know at that time that in the next film he was going to actually be fighting. We'll talk about that next week. But here they bring him back, and they bring this puppet, and oh my god, it doesn't even look like Yoda. It doesn't even look like a de-aged Yoda. It looks like a whole nother fucking mongrel. This was terrible. I'm so glad they replaced it. This is one change about those Blu-ray releases that I was actually happy about. It looks like one of the gremlins from the new batch. The ones that are all, they're all like mutated and shit. How did they go to this set with this puppet and think, yeah, that's the exact character from Empire Strikes Back? Not even the same mold. No. Uh, and yeah. by the way, Shane Little Jackson here just looks bored and grumpy. He was in the press when this was coming out saying how excited he was to be here, but my God, you would not fucking know it. This is just a down character, and the Jedi Council is just a concept that I'm going to go ahead and say I just don't agree with. I thought it was great to see the council. I remember everybody being excited because we were going to see younger Yoda, and he's yes. going to look different. Yeah, he looks different, all right? He looks like a different mm. character from the same species. Guess what? When 900 years old you be, getting somebody the age 20 years probably shouldn't make too much of a difference. I <laughs> love uh, other than that, I thought one of the things we always kind of wanted to see was more Jedi. I think going to the temple, seeing a temple room, seeing that there was more in the mythology of the Jedi, I thought was cool. But these people suck, too. Yeah. <laughs> you know, maybe that should be, you know, Star Wars Episode One: Politics and religion suck. I was yeah. so excited to see these Jedi in action, and we'll, we'll talk about it. But once they get in action, <laughs> they prove to not be very effective at all. Yeah, I mean, only the Jedi who matter are allowed to do cool shit. Yeah. Which is the problem with the prequels. I'm like, all right, outside of Yoda, I know none of you are probably going to stick around. And also, this drove me crazy where it's, you had this Jedi Council, but only like two of them speak. Yeah. Yep. What are the rest of you doing? <laughs> mm -hmm. We didn't get the E.T. cameo I paid 10 bucks to see. <laughs> uh, nice little insertion by Lucas, but try as he might to make this visually pleasing with these floating pods. He cannot make these fucking politics scenes interesting. <laughs> I I don't hate them, but I don't need as much of them as they are. I do think it's important to see the fall of the Republic, but it, yeah, it's a little much. I think the Senate room looks cool. I think it looks, you know, but move on. And also, you don't see much in the way of corruption outside of Palpatine. So again, it reiterates that the Jedi are morons and suck at their jobs, because if they're supposed to be peacekeepers, they're letting one guy ruin hundreds of years of democracy. It's only Naboo matters in, in, these, in, in these movies. Like, it's, it's either Naboo or it's... Uh, Tatooine. Or Tatooine or Kamino because of the clone. All these other worlds don't matter, and you shouldn't even have... The Senate should just be three planets, because they're the, they're the only ones that matter in these goddamn prequels. And it, I mean, it's like they forgot the Jedi mantra. You know, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. The queen takes away Valor's leadership, 
as Palpatine is in her ear telling her they need a strong Chancellor to take over. Anakin is brought before the Jedi Council, and they are sensing fear in him, as well as him missing his mother. We then hear that Senator Palpatine has been nominated to be Valor's successor, and he promises that if he wins, he will put an end to the corruption that the Senate has established until then. We're going to make the Republic great again. <laughs> I'm telling you. <laughs> Don't tell... I, I wasn't... <laughs> I'd be lying if I did not say I, I was thinking of that as I was watching this. The Queen says that she will go back to Naboo and that she will not sign the treaty. Mace tells Qui-Gon that Anakin will not be trained due to the fact that he is too old. Even though Luke was how old when he was trained? <laughs> like, okay, how old do they have to be? Two? Three years like old? This, but, but this is the problem I have with the fucking Jedi in general. They pull rules out of their ass. Yeah. yeah. Where it's like... Qui-Gon should have known they were going to give him shit. Maybe he did just to stir the pot. I mean, it's, it'd be in his character, given who his apprentice is and what we learn about him. But Lucas takes this too far, and he's like, oh, that means you have to become a Jedi when you're three, and we put a stupid fucking helmet on you when you swing a lightsaber. <laughs> it's so fucking dumb. Everything about the Jedi is dumb. I'm sorry. I hate the Force. I hate lightsabers. Hell, every time I see a robe now, I want to stab it with a knife. <laughs> unless it's got a bucket for a womp fund. When, yeah, when, unless they have a Hogwarts button and, a, and an animal of some kind in the front, I am done with robes. I want to go to Star Wars land and get you a lightsaber just because of that. I think I want to wear a lightsaber when I go to Hogwarts next month <laughs> at Universal Studios. <laughs> I don't think I let you through the gate. It's like if you, it's like if you wear one of those Hogwarts robes at Hollywood Studios. <laughs> I feel this is the council's way of getting out of having him trained because they fear that what the end game will be. And this is me giving Lucas a huge gimme. That's the problem, though. Yeah, Lucas doesn't give a definitive reason mm-hmm. outside. Oh, he's too old. And Quiet Guy's like, all right, fine. I'll, I'll, I'll take both of them on. I don't give a shit. Like, <laughs> yeah. But even then, it's you have Yoda. You have some of these other ones. You have Jedi Masters that you want to be important. How about you have Mace and Yoda explain how, if he's trained, he will be the downfall of the Jedi. Yeah. Not too difficult to do. And instead, you get Mace Windu, or um, you get Qui-Gon going, um, hey, Obi, I know I never told you that you were good enough to be an actual Jedi, but I want the new kid now. You've aged out. You're like a 25-year-old to Leonardo DiCaprio. You're, you're out. I'm going with the new, younger version of you. And also, the only person who's questioning it is Obi-Wan, where he's saying, the boy's dangerous. They sense it. But I don't buy he's saying that because he believes it. It's because he's threatened by being cast aside in favor of Anakin. It's more of a jealousy thing than something that's prophetic. The council tell Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon to go to Naboo to protect the queen. Because that's all that matters in the yes. is, one, is one planet. <laughs> Qui-Gon says, despite what everyone is saying, he does not feel that the boy is dangerous. And he tells Anakin that his focus will be his reality as we are now being told about the Metachlorians. So Lucas is now defining Metachlorians for us. Dude, you know what? This is... Here, I'll, I'll preview something. This is like setting up something like, I don't know, the Wills, and having people say that they're going to defend the Wills, and then you freaking leave it, and it doesn't matter. Either go balls deep or don't go in at all. Sidious tells Viceroy that he is sending Darth Maul to join them in helping bring down the Trade Federation. The Queen tells the group that she will be landing on Naboo no matter what, and that she will need Jar Jar's help to do so. Qui-Gon tells Obi-Wan that he has been a great apprentice, and he foresees that he will eventually become a great Jedi Knight. <laughs> so step aside while I train this kid. Not that we'll ever see that. Yeah. Not in live action. Unless you watch the, the stuff that's not in the movies. <laughs> Jar Jar takes the group to the Gungan safety place, and this is where it is revealed that the Queen is actually Padme. This is yes, also... <laughs> 
waited for that. <laughs> this is also when they get the help of the Gungans. And this is like when the Rebels got the help of the Ewoks and Jedi. So I was kind of going with this. Well, the Ewoks just said, okay, we'll help you. They didn't have to bargain. That's true. Well, they had to say, don't eat us. (laughs) Yeah. We're seeing the armies get established and preparing for war. And I'm going to go ahead and say, we've had a lot of fun at this movie's expense and the wrong writing and directing and performances that we've seen. But I feel the final 30 minutes of this movie is borderline great. It has all the things I love about Star Wars. We're getting a space battle, a ground battle, and one of the best fight scenes of the entire franchise. From here on out, I am with this movie. Uh, I think the last third of this movie to your point or the last 30 minutes really gets overlooked and overshadowed by people's opinions on it i think when the battle droids show up again the sound and this is when you can take the time to establish seeing those ships open up and seeing row after row after row of battle droids and then panning back and seeing how massive it is that's impressive watching the gungan set up this shield i mean this battle is this battle is so great that marvel without a hint of irony completely rips it off for Infinity War with the shield and then breaking through. It is amazing how Disney bought both and stole from one to use to the other. I think this battle here in the field is pretty damn epic, and it's amazing to think. I mean, these effects hold up pretty decently well for being fully CG. And then when we get to the other battle that's going on in the capital, wow, stakes really ramp up. I'm with you on two of the battles. I don't give a shit about the Gungans versus the droids because it's two CGI armies fighting each other. And it's intercut with Jar Jar hijinks, which I think this is where it goes a bit too far. Um, you, don't, you don't like him getting tangled up in a battle droid and <laughs> jumping on the gun, and you don't like any of that stuff? A general Jar Jar show respect. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah th- this is where, in these movies, they throw out the word general. Lando's a general all of the yeah. time, even though we don't know if he has any military experience. General Solo, even though he's a smuggler. <laughs> I mean, I guess making Jar Jar General is par for the course. <laughs> but it's like watching, I remember the, the second Mummy movie, they fight the army of Anubis. Yeah. It, it's like watching that where all the stakes are gone. I don't care about any of these people. And they're not even people. It's an army of droids and an army of Gungans. I was about to call them Ewoks, even though I, I know that's wrong. But I guess the Ewoks are more effective when you're doing the math because the only reason the Gungans win is because Anakin got there on time. Mm-hmm. I think Ewoks could have held out because it was there. You know, they had the element of surprise. Yeah, I mean, the Gungans lost. They got captured. Mm-hmm. I give up. <laughs> <laughs> Qui-Gon tells Anakin to find a safe place once they get inside, and we are seeing more battle droids taking out, but a door opens, and there's Darth Maul, and we know what's coming as that hood is taken off, and he turns on that double-sided red lightsaber. But in the midst of this, Anakin has gotten in a ship with R2 and has taken off. Oh, fuck this kid. <laughs> yeah, this you is where it turns. R2-D2 might as well say compliant. Because <laughs> <laughs> th- this shit is play of the navigator. <laughs> to your point, Adam, I love seeing the battle droids unfold and be let loose. Great designs here. We're getting Gungan bombs being thrown. And last time we had Wicket getting bopped with his own rock. Here, Jar Jar is a hero through a comedy of errors, running from the bombs and getting his foot stepped on by battle droids. Meanwhile, Maul and the Jedi are continuing their battle through the corridors of Naboo. It's obviously designed to look like Cloud City, but I dig it. I love the revolving doors we're going to be seeing, and watching Obi-Wan fall about three stories before getting back up and getting back into the battle. He gets back up like it's nothing. (laughs) I know. Of this trilogy, this fight is my ultimate favorite. I'll go ahead and reveal that. This fucking fight is tremendous. 
as far as choreography goes, like this is up there with the first Pirates movie. Oh, as yeah. far as just hand-to-hand choreography and how it, they use the environment, except for those dividers. That is such a contrived way to separate Obi-Wan from the other two. Oh, the, my God, is that stupid. The drama it creates, though, I'm, I'm with. But what he should done, he just gets knocked out and has to watch, because he falls three yeah. stories. Qui-Gon falls and gets on his back. Yeah. Darth Maul jumps, lands on his feet, and he doesn't shatter his ankles. <laughs> like, like, I guess the Force makes you invulnerable, and Adam... Don't you miss the days where someone could get stabbed in the stomach with a lightsaber and they die? <laughs> you know, one thing that I don't think gets enough credit is the editing as this goes back and forth between the fights and the battle and everything else, because it really does a good job of keeping you going. Meanwhile, the ground battle is on as they jump out the building and use grapple hooks to climb the building, which there was a documentary on, I believe it was the... DVD. There is a 30-minute portion where they talk about how they got up this building. (laughs) Remember that? They all got their their Batman grappling hooks. Yeah. And Anakin moves into the mothership via autopilot. (laughs) Oh, yeah. But this is also the worst instance of a character having plot armor. Everyone is dying around him. Yeah, all the ships are blowing up. You know, the deflector shield, they can't get through. (laughs) Because he's the important character, he's not even... Even R2 doesn't get hit which you think is what would happen because he's like Rocky. He keeps getting hit and he gets back up. But the only reason that they put him up here to do this is because in A New Hope, Obi-Wan uh, says, oh, your father was this. a wonderful yeah. pilot when I first met mm-hmm. him, so you've got to show that he's a great pilot. No, he's not. Yeah. He hit a button and R2-D2 did what he does. He kills people. Well, if there's one thing Obi-Wan and Ada can both share, it's stretching the truth. Well, that's all Jedi, though. That's the thing, oh, that's, is that yeah, the, the Jedi, Jedi are liars, the Sith are telling the truth. That's the yep. weird thing about the way Lucas has established this. Well, the Sith also bend the rules, too. Just the, the, the Force is bullshit. I'm sorry. That should have been the title of Episode 7. Instead of The Force Awakens, it should have been The Force is bullshit, and you all know it. <laughs> We're seeing more of the saber fight, and I love the move that Qui-Gon uses here where he elbows Maul in the chest and then punches his face. Great move there. As the revolving doors turn on and Qui-Gon kneels, waiting for the doors to open. Great way of building suspense here and tension. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not with Matt here. I've been with Matt the majority of this review, but here I am feeling the tension. Yeah, I've not cared for Qui-Gon in anything else. I've not cared for Liam Neeson. I like this deliberate pausing. Mm-hmm. Is it contrived? Is it forced? Uh-huh. Nice. Yes, it is. it's forced upon us quite a bit, but I think it serves the purpose as contrived as it is, which is we're watching the Jedi try to be still. You get three different type of, of characterizations of what's going on here. You get Darth Maul pacing back and forth yeah. like a tiger caged up. You have Obi-Wan who's frustrated, just kind of walking and trying to decide what to do. And you got Qui-Gon basically laying on his back like he did back at the Skywalker homestead with Shmi. He just kind of sitting there taking it easy. I I tried to work that in earlier. I missed it. But trying to show the monk-like that we get told the Jedi are. Never really shown, and I don't think we get shown again, but showing the three different versions of what we have here and these energy doors, I think they serve their purpose. Is it bullshit in regards to the Force and lightsabers and everything else? Absolutely. (laughs) You know, slash the side and those should be able to go away. But it does what it is supposed to. Hit the power source, dumbass. <laughs> one thing I didn't talk about, you know, we've praised the costume design a lot, but there's one thing I hate. That stupid Padawan braid. Oh, yes. Because they yes. have short hair. Like, Obi-Wan and Hayden Christensen is going to have the same haircut in the next movie. 
It looks so dumb when they have this rat tail hanging off their head. That's what it looks like, too, the stupid frickin' rat tail. Would you want a man bun? Uh, I would prefer it. Meanwhile, Amadala and her squad are surrounded. We go back to the saber fight as Qui-Gon attacks, and now Obi-Wan is stuck behind the door as he sees his master get killed, and he's forced to look at his body while waiting for the doors to open. One thing I didn't pick up on until later is we're not seeing this body disappear like Obi-Wan's did in A New Hope. The reason why is because nobody knew how to be his Force ghost yet. And Qui-Gon is the one who establishes that it was a power laden upon Jedi years and years before in the books I've read. And it just kind of disappeared and nobody knew how to do it until Qui-Gon reestablishes it. So Qui-Gon is the one who reestablishes the ability to turn into a Force ghost. And that is why his body didn't disappear. And I remember when this movie was out, people were furious over the fact that his body didn't disappear when he got stabbed. Well, I have a theory that because he's not a true Jedi in that, I view him as the precursor to the Grey Jedi. Because he, he's not drinking all the Kool-Aid. So maybe that's why he finds that balance to be able to come back. I never thought of it one way or the other. I thought it was weird, but I thought it was just so they could hold the funeral pyre at the end like they did with Vader. Yeah, that's a good point, too. But yeah, I, Anakin turns back. Maybe if, you, if you're wearing clothing, you can't. <laughs> <laughs> Jar Jar gives up. <laughs> that should have been the title of the next movie. <laughs> I give up. I you know what, up. though? I did. I got to admit, every single time I see the scene, I do chuckle. I, like Everyone's like, okay, we're not going to give up, we're not going to give up, and then here come the battle droids, and Charger's like, I give up! And there's a big groan. I'm sorry, I laugh. I laugh with and at Jar Jar in a good way more than get exasperated. And the Viceroy are once again thrown off by Padme, and she attacks with more troops, and she says that they'll discuss a new treaty now. Obi-Wan emerges, and his anger is controlled as he fights Maul and delegates the double-sided lightsaber... Again, very fast-paced, and all of this stuff Obi-Wan is doing is actually McGregor, because he worked his ass off for this scene. I love the way he's keeping up with Ray Park as they're fighting. This is pretty awesome. This is also the fastest lightsaber work you've ever seen in a Star Wars movie. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Those other lightsaber fights were all built on emotion, and we said that during those podcasts. You know, the, I don't think the first one really counts. But oh, God, because no. in this movie, you and McGregor can rotate his shoulder. Yeah. But we saw the emotion behind Luke and Vader when they fought. Here, you're absolutely right. We're seeing the sword, these sword fights, and they are fast-paced, and they are exciting as hell. God, this scene rocks. It's, it's just so freaking amazing. I mean, even watching the documentary, seeing them train together yeah. and that kind of stuff is amazing. You know, you get that emotion when Ewan just breaks through. It's not anger, but it is just ferocity. And Ray Park, for someone who was brought in at first just to do stunts and then to get the full role, it's not the first time you all have discussed them because, don't forget, that was Toad in the end yeah. film. Mm-hmm. As I discussed that I wanted to see you know, a Superman fight be super, I think for a lot of us, this is kind of what we dreamed a lightsaber battle could always be, and it doesn't disappoint. And then the music on top of it, I mean, it's mm-hmm. just, for as many issues as this film does have, God, Damn, this is good. Yeah, and to be fair, the music is actually off when McGregor's out, and this is all done without it. Yeah, yeah. you're you're hearing the lightsabers. Yeah, Yeah, which I think is a great choice. They've only ever done one scene where they give Ben Burt complete carte blanche, and it's all sound work. And they do it multiple times in this movie. Darth Maul pushes Obi-Wan off a ledge, and then we cut to Anakin. He's waiting for a ship to stop overheating, and he actually blows up the mothership and then declares that this is pod racing. And this, my friend, is why people hated your character. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is bad writing. Yeah. <laughs> bad dialogue, at least. Yeah. Oof. 
Yeah, and again, it's another Star Wars movie where you shoot the magic thing in the center and the whole ship explodes. By accident. By accident. Yeah. yeah all by happenstance. <laughs> yeah, it's like, I, I mean, I guess that's the, you know, the Empire, they must have had the same uh, construction team. <laughs> I mean, he, he may be the chosen one, but I don't know, maybe just like his conception, he's an accident. But I think the chosen one prophecy referred to that particular starfighter. Because <laughs> if he went in any other ship, who's to say they didn't have autopilot and he blows up? The destruction of the mothership means the battle droids on Naboo have now been disabled. There is only one more conflict to solve. As Obi-Wan leaps from the ledge, he uses the force to grab his sword and then cuts Darth Maul in two. Um, Somehow Darth Maul returned. <laughs> well, eventually. But this was the end of him for a while, and people were pissed about this. I wasn't. I, I thought this was a very triumphant ending to a film that we knew was going to be the first of a trilogy. I didn't mind seeing this guy go. You guys have already said that you didn't, but I actually like the way Obi-Wan does this. Yeah, I think it's done really well. I think it works. And yet, I mean, let's remember that the coolest Star Wars characters are the ones that look awesome, show up, get killed, and are gone. So, yeah, I did not have an issue with this whatsoever, and there's been a lot of talk about how do heroes kill and stuff like that, and this was surely, if this was done today, there would be a question about should Obi-Wan have killed Darth Maul, I think. But I think this is pretty awesome, and then even seeing the way that it resolves, and him having to hold his master's head in his lap, probably not the first time, while Qui-Gon goes off into the ether. Yeah, I I, I like this scene of him and Qui-Gon, and as he's promising to train the boy, and Qui-Gon once again says that he will be the one who brings balance to the Force. But wait, tell me how, up to late. I think it's one of the few times that Liam is trying, maybe because he's actually got another actor to play against. Because I think he resented just digital so much. Neeson did say that he did take this movie without reading the script because his son was a huge Star Wars fan and he wanted to be in one for his son and it shows that he didn't want to be here. <laughs> well, so like, I can't fault the guy. Like, this no, absolutely not. This is a nice paycheck. Paycheck as well because like, yeah. everyone wanted to be in the new Star Wars movies. Absolutely. We all saw this coming because I like why guys ever mentioned it in any of the other movies. Uh, as far as Darth Maul going out, he's fine. He served his purpose for the story. And Adam, you mentioned in the beginning of this podcast that we got to say it again. This was spoiled if you bought that soundtrack because I had it too. Yeah, <laughs> it's, I want to say it's called Qui Gon's Noble End. Yeah, so it's not like they said Qui Gon's dead, but you might as well. And that came out what like two weeks before the movie was even out. Yep, <laughs> it's like Boba Fett though, where Darth Maul kind of gets taken out like a punk because aim for the head. <laughs> Go for the kill shot, and he kicks one lightsaber over the cliff, but doesn't do the other one. The other thing that's interesting about this is Obi-Wan pulls himself up, and I'm not sure if Lucas is trying to establish the speed of which Obi-Wan's doing this, but there's a good three seconds that Maul's sitting there looking at him before he gets stabbed. You're saying he couldn't react to that? Oh, his midichlorian count was too low. (laughs) (laughs) Meanwhile, the Viceroy are taken away, and Palpatine tells Anakin that he will be watching Anakin's career with great interest. And of course, those that know me know one of my other biggest, or one of my other greatest cheers, that I got a blue version of the Imperial Guard, my favorite character, meaning I had to buy a bunch of other toys to go with my red figures. (laughs) Yeah, because these are the precursors. Their outfits are much more feathery. What a contract that fucker Lucas signed to get assholes like you to fucking give him, just give him any money that you have. I'm a sucker. Working the pharmacy at fucking Rayleigh's, and you're <laughs> buying all these goddamn Star Wars figures with it. <laughs> Palpatine then tells Amidala that together they will bring peace and prosperity to the public. 
<laughs> Yoda tells Obi-Wan that the Council has elected him to Jedi Knight, and then reluctantly gives Obi-Wan permission to train Anakin. So Obi-Wan says, oh, all right, I'll do it whether you let me or not. So Yoda just says, okay, we give you permission. Go ahead. Why doesn't Why doesn't Yoda fight him on this? Yeah, that's what I he's was like, saying. Yeah. He's like, I know Qui-Gon wanted you to do this, but we already told him no. And Yoda says there's danger in his training. He can feel it, but he's still like, okay, again, this is another notch on my belt of the Jedi fucking suck. Yep. We're seeing Qui-Gon be put to rest. And Lucas is doing a lot of foreshadowing here as he puts Palpatine and the Queen and Anakin in the same shot. And then Obi-Wan promises Anakin that he will be a Jedi. And also makes Windu and Yoda talk about the Master and the Apprentice, which has never really been established. No. I'm sorry, that's fucking dumb, because the Jedi don't do that. Because Qui-Gon tried to say, all right, I'll take two. And Yoda has two Padawans. This was yeah. not established until this trilogy, and it's another bit of retroactive storytelling that Lucas is doing here to say there's one master, one apprentice, and that's bullshit. We're then seeing a celebration as Anakin gets a haircut, and... and that stupid rat tail. <laughs> they sell those as freaking little, like, clip-on ponytails that did They do, <laughs> yeah. Yes. And Jar Jar raises a crystal ball I once bought at Spencer's. Say, it looks like the one from, you know, in the first Final Destination. Yeah. When they, Devin Salas got it in his room. That's such a relic of the late 90s. You might as well have given him a lava lamp. <laughs> Amid all the smiles at Anakin, credits roll on Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. Scale of 1 to 10, boys. Here we go. What do we give the first prequel to Star Wars, The Phantom Menace? Adam? There was never a movie more anticipatory for me than Star Wars, The Phantom Menace. Even just hearing that they were going to call it The Phantom Menace, because we were all convinced it was just going to be episode one. That was it. So, oh, my God, it's got a title. And, oh, my God, here's the crawl. And here's toys. And what is this? And what is that? This film was never, ever going to have the possibility to live up to 18 years of anticipation, 16 years of anticipation, and EU and stories and headcanon and everything else. So what is this film on its own merit? It's a family-slash-kids movie establishing where we got to the movies that we all loved for the most part. And it's uneven at times. There is some extremely questionable acting by actors who, you know what I'll say, they did not do a good enough job on their own being that their director isn't really capable of directing actors to give a performance. So I expect more of Oscar winners like Liam Neeson, for example. But it is an enjoyable film. It's not A New Hope. I don't even think it's Return of the Jedi, but I don't think it's bad. It sets a stage for what's going to come afterwards. The effects work, for the most part, are really good. I wish people understood that this movie change movie theaters. This is why we have digital screens is because of Lucasfilm, George Lucas, at that point, THX, working to get full digital films be made. This is not the first time and not the last time that George Lucas literally changed the film industry. And that alone is pretty damn important for this film. Jar Jar Binks, problematic to some, he doesn't upset me. I do think he's fun at times. He goes overboard a little bit, but as I said before, he is less annoying than Goldenrod is throughout the course of this series. The fights are epic. The music is phenomenal. Darth Maul, the look is great. Even the voice is great. And the lightsaber battle is 
the one that we always wanted with the score going on, Duel of the Fates. It's epic, it's beautiful. Qui-Gon's noble end, though spoiled, doesn't come off hokey at all. It comes across as something that was going to propel our, our heroes forward. So as compromised as this movie may be in acting quality and story and editing, it is still an enjoyable ride for a Star Wars film. We talked about it at the beginning of this. Sometimes there's nothing worse for Star Wars fandom than Star Wars fans. But this is something, if it's on, I don't rush to turn it off. you know. And I do think it has a part of this trilogy. <sighs> Where am I going to put it score-wise, though? Because I know what comes afterwards, and I know what comes well afterwards. So I'm, I'm going to give it a... I'm going to give it a 7. I love the pod race, and I love the final battle so much that when I thought I was going to give it a six, when I go back into it, those still, over 20 years later, get so much emotion out of me that I can't help but cheer. So I'm going to give it a soft seven. Wow, seven out of ten. I was not expecting a score that high on this podcast. Interesting. Goudreau? Yeah, it's it's really weird having the perspective I do as someone who has never had any hatred for the prequels. But at the same time, I don't have love for Star Wars either, so I don't think my opinion is going to be one that is, would call it a hot take, but I think this movie's fine, but it also leaves me wanting more. I think the potential is actually here, but I think there needed to be more collaboration, allowed collaboration, when this was in production. George Lucas, for all his faults, he's not a good director, self-admittedly, and it shows in the performances, and it shows in the dialogue. And I do find a lot of the stuff on Tatooine to be pretty sloppy and slow, which I'm sure the Jedi Order would revolt against me saying those words because I have to control my emotions. But, yeah, it, it boils down to a really strong finale. That kind of saves it for me. But I don't think this is something I can classify as a good movie. But I can't also go on these airwaves and say this is one of the worst movies ever made. I certainly don't think it's the worst Star Wars movie. But... There's not enough here for me to give it a complete endorsement, but I'm also not going to rake it over the coals either. It's fine, but it does leave me wanting more, so I'm going to land on a five. It's fine. It's not a slog to get through in its entirety, but it certainly drags. In all the hype leading up to this movie, I think people forgot one thing. It's only a movie, and no movie is perfect. Hell, we talk about those imperfections every week on this podcast. And it's no secret that Star Wars Episode One is not without its flaws. We've discussed them. We've discussed them at length. And a lot of people trace this back to Return of the Jedi, where people were seeing kind of some kinks in the George Lucas armor, where a lot of the stuff on Endor dragged. We talked about that when we talked about Return of the Jedi. A lot of the hijinks of characters in that movie turned some people off. Let's go back to the Ewok stealing the speeder bike. Two of us didn't really like that scene. But getting back to this film, my main problem is it doesn't look like anyone's into it. It just seems like a lot of people are just here, going through the motions. And they have a director who's not there to push them to get to that next emotion. He has cast the right people, I believe, in these roles. Hell, I'll even say Jake Lloyd. The right person for this role. If you want that little kid exuberance. But he's too young. Darth Vader should have been older. We want to see this fall from grace. 
we got to go from an older point of view. Maybe that's just to protect the fact that we need a quote-unquote younger Jedi to train, which leads to my other issues with this movie, is he has worked so hard to provide connective tissue to that other trilogy, it kind of diminishes that other trilogy. If you talk about midichlorians, if you talk about C-3PO being a creation of Anakin, Darth Vader, why doesn't any of this connect? Well, it's because George Lucas is doing some revisionist history here. It's a problem. All that being said, though, if I look at it as just the movie that it was released as, I don't have that big a problem with it. I have some issues with Jar Jar when he gets too into his hijinks, but it's not the movie killer that a lot of people have said that it is. I feel bad for the two actors who took a drubbing when this movie was released. And I'll say, when I walked out of that theater, I said, you know what? It's not great. It's not bad. And I'm going to say the exact same thing on this podcast. Not great. It's not terrible. It's in between. But I was more entertained than not. So I want to go right between you two and give this a six. I think that final 30 minutes is a lot like the final 30 minutes of Return of the Jedi, where it kind of redeems it. And the stuff that dragged is picked up by Ewan McGregor fighting Ray Park in that magnificent battle. And there's a fun ground battle. There's a fun space battle. There's everything people look for when they go to Star Wars. And I walked out of there saying the exact same thing. There was a space battle. There was a ground battle. There was a lightsaber battle. All of it was better than I saw before. So now I'm going to give it a 6 on 10. George Lucas releases Phantom Menace. And plans were already on for the sequel to his prequel. Star Wars Episode Two: Attack of the Clones, which we would get three years later. This is looked at by a lot of people as the real down point of the series. Adam, what are you expecting when we review Star Wars Episode Two: Attack of the Clones next week? I think some of the help we gave this film we're not going to be willing to give next week. I think we're going to be much more harsh considering that some time had gone on, and I think this is going to start to show when people begin to turn on the entire franchise. And you think the three of us are going to reflect on that? Do you think there's going to be a battle, much like we had with Man of Steel? What are you expecting with us reviewing it? I think there's going to be a split a little bit. I don't think we're all necessarily going to be on the same board. I think this is going to have more definitive emotional decision or um, feeling on next week compared to this week's. I think the takes are going to be stronger. That's the way to put it. I think it's going to be stronger takes Hmm. when it comes to Attack of the Clones. Matt? Yeah, I, I definitely have more concrete feelings towards one side or the other, but for a movie that is lambasted by almost everyone, I'm excited to sit down and rewatch it, because it's been a very long time. Talk about being hyped as a kid, when you saw Yoda pull out a lightsaber in that trailer, that got a lot of people talking. Was there a trailer where he pulled one out? I thought that didn't happen until Revenge of the oh Sith. No, he... Oh no, it happens in... yeah. Okay. Yeah, he, he whips out a lightsaber. I mean, they used the shot from the end, and it was on one of the posters, too. So I remember that. The only trailer I remember is of just Darth Vader's breathing. That was literally the only trailer I really remember. And the one of Obi-Wan from Episode 4 talking about the Clone Wars and seeing the stuff in the background. When it comes to me, again, very excited. Despite the reaction to this film, I was still excited to see where Lucas would take it. I was excited because in the lead-up to it, we were told it was going to be a different Star Wars movie. It was going to be a love story. Boy, are we, am I going to have things to say about that. There's some casting. There's nothing, there's nothing I know more than how to write about love. <laughs> I mean, based on your voice, I Miss Piggy was there. Sure. <laughs> I'm looking forward to discussing it because, like Matt, I haven't seen it in a pretty long time. And... 
I remember feelings that were great. I remember feelings that were, like, not so great. Saw it a number of times in theaters, much like this one. And my opinion on it hasn't changed too much. So can't wait to talk about that. And I'm with Adam. I think there's going to be some very spirited discussions next week. But that does it for Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. We are going through these Star Wars films. And I cannot believe that we still have, what, five films to discuss after this? Eight? Seven. Seven? Seven? Wow. Somewhere in that vicinity, between five and eight. And we're going to get through them all. It's going to lead into the first month of the next year, but we are going to go through them all. And I'm looking forward to going through this journey with you boys. And until next week, when we discuss Star Wars Episode Two: Attack of the Clones. I'm a podcaster, and my name is Garrett. Thank you, boys. There's no doubt the mysterious warrior was a Sith. Mm. Always true there are. No more, no less. A master and an apprentice. But which was destroyed? The master or the apprentice? Thank you for listening to this episode of The Three Men in a Retrospective Podcast. We will watch your career with great interest. Join us next week for an entirely new review. I ask you to help us. And if you would be so kind, please take a moment and give us a positive review and rating on your podcast platform of choice. I need a midichlorian count. It truly helps others find and discover our podcasts. Need that you do not. And if you like this podcast, please head over to percolatedmedia.net or search your podcast stream of choice for some of our blockbuster retrospectives such as Avatar, Top Gun, the films of Martin Scorsese and Leonardo DiCaprio, Pirates of the Caribbean, and many more. When in trouble, Gungans go to sacred place. Mr. Shadow, come on, Mr. Shadow. The Three Men in a Retrospective podcast is produced by Garrett, Matt, Adam, and Nathan. I come before you in peace. Although we do not always agree, Your Honor, our two great societies have always lived in peace. Edited by Garrett. Hello, boys. Voiceovers by Adam. I will not condone a course of action that will lead us to war. The Three Men and a Retrospective Podcast is for review and discussion, and all clips, music, and audio cues are used as such.
You saw people gonna bitch. back yeah <laughs> what are you laughing at <laughs> just hearing the, <laughs> the sound of a can cracking open getting ready to discuss phantom menace oh. it's appropriate <laughs> <laughs> all right boys we uh we ready to go here <laughs> are you ever ready to discuss star wars prequels i guess we'll find out adam give me count or matt God damn it. God dang it. You did that. That's twice. I know. Yeah. Dude, I, I'm going to always confuse you fucking guys. Dorks. Oh, now he's saying all white guys. Are white. <laughs> I mean, it fits, it fits with the racist overtones of this movie. So. Roger, Roger. You would, and there were people making sure you couldn't just walk in. You had to buy a ticket, and when I saw Wing Commander, half the audience left after the trailer. Yeah. You know, not a great movie, not a bad one. Horribly, though. Mark Hamill's done worse. Dramatically worse. If we um, do our dream of doing video game films, we'll get to it eventually. <laughs> but on top of that... My opinion on the movie is still the same a decade later, but I thought it was cool seeing it in the theater for the first time since I was like, you know, six or seven, because I did see this three times when it came out. Nowadays, I don't go more than twice. But there is one movie that's come out this year that I've seen four times in the theater. So I will still pay my hard-earned money if something earns it or if I love something that much. Oh, yeah. What was what was that again? Uh, I don't know if I should say it on the airwaves because we're going to cover it at some point. Okay. All right. We'll yep. save it. Here's a hint. You and Jen watched it very recently. Oh. Oh. Okay. All right. Yeah. So okay. I spent 12 yep. hours in a movie theater. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We'll talk about that coming up in the next year. Maybe change some of this around a little bit because I, I think the character itself is problematic. I just don't like it. Matt, you're going to say something? Yeah. Anna Pack one? Uh, she could have worked. Hey, there was, another, there was another woman on the set that he could have put on. His buddy's daughter, Sofia Coppola. She was here. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, God. She can't correct or act. Oh, God, are you kidding? Her movies are fantastic. Don't get yeah, me started. Yeah, she's made one good movie. She's made tons of good movies. She's made one, and it only works because Bill Murray was very against type. Oh, oh speaking of which, could Scarlett Johansson have played this? Mm. She, there you go. Has she done? Yes, yeah, she had done um, that one with Thora Birch by this point. Yeah, she could have done it. Yeah. Coppola family can't even grow wine. <laughs> yeah, that's very true. Uh, stuff tastes like fucking cough medicine. Yeah, it's right in my backyard up here. Ugh. Uh, I've been I've been on that tour. It's actually pretty awesome. Oh, beautiful place. Or mm. wine. <laughs> I get it every one of my birthdays. You guys are assholes. You shouldn't. Just made Ask for better guests. <laughs> <laughs> Not the king books. <laughs> Amadala says that... Roger, Roger. I think the way R2 is reintroduced isn't bad. I actually kind of like it. Well, by comparison, uh, absolutely. Yeah, no, I'm not saying it's bad. It's just, you give me a choice, I think you write this differently. You give me those notes and I'll, uh, I'll, I'll make sure that they get to the right people, okay? Okay, thank you. <laughs> as we are now being told about the Metachlorians. So Lucas is now defining Metachlorians for us. <laughs> Adam Sorry. wants to say something so bad. <laughs> no, I'm just it. I, uh, 
All right. <laughs> you sound like everybody in 1999 when they walked out of the theater. Dude, you know what? And the Viceroy are once again thrown off by Padme, and she attacks with more troops, and she says that they'll discuss a new treaty now. They must have loved on Naboo. They must have gotten raw, because they're doing the shit Russo did with Kane and Undertaker, where, like... You know, he would turn around, Undertaker's robe, and he's wearing the mask. They love all kinds of shit on that planet. I love the idea of George Lucas watching WWF wrestling in 1999. <laughs> oh, he's going to chop off his pee <laughs> I can step away for like two minutes. Okay. I mean, there was no father when he gives birth to a hand. Now, we're going to talk about some dumb shit, ladies and gentlemen, when we get to the Attitude Era. Like, Oh, my God. Oh, I can't wait till we get to those. And then, what was it? Um, God damn it. Yeah, Mabel slipping on the beer when him and Jericho are fighting. Oh, my God. Oh, so much stuff from that era that I just, I can't wait to get to. When are we going to record that, by the way? Uh, we got time this weekend. Okay. All right, I, I have time this weekend, too, so I'll get on that. Should we go on? Uh, well, we can leave him hanging just like Obi-Wan. <laughs> Which makes Darth Maul look even dumber. He kicks one lightsaber over the edge, but doesn't do it for the other one. <laughs> <laughs> you really just hate Jedi Knights. And <laughs> oh, I hate... If I see a lightsaber, you are, you are off the list. <laughs> I think uh, there's, no, there's, there's one person with a lightsaber in these movies that I do side with. I um, I was in a Star Wars wedding. By the time the next movie had come out, I was in a Star Wars wedding, and we were able to choose our lightsabers, and it was like, that was kind of cool. Like I have stories about that when we get to next week, but yeah, I was, I, I was in a karate gi, and we dressed up as Jedi Knights for a wedding. You weren't in a... I'm surprised you didn't have a Harry Potter-themed wedding, Matt. Oh, I tried, believe me. Did you? I, I've been to a Harry Potter-themed wedding. Have you? Uh, yeah, they did... Um, I'm trying to think, like... They had everyone... Like, all the groomsmen were one house, all the brides were another house. Oh, that's awesome. Because if he went in any other ship, who's to say they didn't have autopilot and he blows up? True. I mean, it is the last Starfighter. No, that was... Uh, 15 years before. Um, <laughs> the Destruct... I still want to do that fucking movie, by the way. If we're going to do Masters of the Universe, we got to do The Last Starfighter. So are we going to do, like, 80s Fantasy Part 2? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Last Starfighter, got to do something else to go with. You know what? Do, I want to no, do Enemy Mine. Oh, shit. Oh, my God. Oh, my no, God. No, because no, then we could do Legend. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, we could uh, definitely do that. We could do Willow. Story. Willow would probably be the other one. What would be the other one? Willow? Oh, yeah, well, we can do that. I, other, I mean, there's a ton. Yeah. Because Conan's going to be its own retro. Mm -hmm. The destruction of the mothership... ...wanted to be in the new Star Wars movies. Absolutely. Yep. Like, right down to the most minuscule of roles. you got mm -hmm. fucking Dominic West in this movie before The Wire. Yeah. There's one line. Sofia Coppola has a some kind of cameo. You've got... I'm trying to think who else... Oh, that's the next movie. I was going to say Rose Byrne. That, that's the next one. Mm -hmm. Next one, yeah. 